You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a podcast where we discuss the ideas of philosophy, ethics, religion, history, and culture. Alongside regular guests and friends, we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. Whoa, aliens. Aliens? Where? Well, we don't know where. Ah, that's exactly the point. Uh, so today we're going to talk about something called the Fermi Paradox and probably a bunch of other things as well. So it's basically the question, where are all the aliens? But before we get onto that, we need to frame the debate, I guess. Uh, so I think I'm going to let you take the lead there, Nye, and mm. unpack a bunch of things which lead us nicely into the question, where are all the aliens? Right. So, I mean, this is a question I've been super interested in probably since I was a kid. I mean, this is... You know, who doesn't want to know, you know, where are the aliens? Yeah, you know, it's, um, and also just to bring the sort of context to humanity's place in the universe as well. It's like it can have profound implications on the way we should operate as society and as a civilization, I guess, depending on how we come to answer this question. Mm. Um, and so the, the basic premise is, as you pretty much uh, put it there, it's like, why haven't we come into contact with aliens yet, given a set of assumptions that, um, you know, a, a lot of people would go, well, hey, the universe is massive. We know that life has occurred on Earth, so, you know, surely, given the number of chances for it to happen, why hasn't intelligent life come in contact with us? Because of the amount of time as well, that's, you know, because these things happen over such massive time spans that surely if their life had started and it got to uh, the stage of intelligent life, you know, by that logic, surely it would also have technologically advanced to a certain stage where it would um, come in contact with because the time spans we're talking about are so massive. And... Essentially, the, the, well, the phrase Fermi paradox uh, comes from, I mean, well, it's, it's named after a guy called Enrico Fermi, uh, who was an Italian physicist. Um, he was actually one of the people who built the first ever nuclear reactor. But the, the reason why it's actually kind of named after him isn't really, isn't necessarily because he was like the first person to really come up with this or really talk about it. It was, it was pretty much just because his, you know, him and his physicist friends uh, back in the early 19th, uh, 1900s were just talking about, you know, alien life and the possibility of, you know, all these like planets out there and all that sort of thing. Is it, is it comparable to the way we sometimes talk about uh, platonic idealism or something? So like, you know, he wasn't the first person to be an idealist. It's just, it, it's kind of just where it's captured in the public consciousness. I would say he wasn't even the first person to actually speculate why, given a certain set of things, aliens haven't contacted us. Yes, yeah, so, so yeah. the actual paradox itself, the, the statement of given these parameters, why haven't we come in contact with alien life yet? You know, he it was just kind of kind of coined. Uh, he was named after him because basically they were around a table and just like yeah, talking basically about we, it. we just associate yeah. it with Fermi, basically. Yeah, and he just at one point says, "Where are they?" or something. You know, it was you know the, the report sort of. Yeah, he was he was at, he differ, was at lunch, wasn't he? And he yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, and it's you know vaguely something something like that, and it ended up carrying his name basically. Uh, there was 1938 the Nobel Prize um, for radioactivity and stuff. So you know he was a you know a cool dude, um, and so sort of moving forward to understand why this is a question in the first place. So why is it that people go, well, um, there seems to be every opportunity uh, for life to exist. We need to have a look at some numbers. So let's let's go over sort of um, the scale of the universe, or at least let's start off with the sort of history of the scale of the universe. And so historically, I mean, I guess we were more or less the centre of the universe um, for, well, thousands of years, really. It's just we didn't really 
place ourselves in, in a solar system, I guess, until, um, you know, maybe a few thousand years ago. It's kind of hard to say exactly exactly what people sort of meant by a sort of system. But either way, we were sort of proposed to be at the centre of it. And there were these celestial bodies um, out there somewhere that was kind of part of this, like, sphere. Yeah, um, uh, heliocentrism is is quite a novel concept in the history of humanity, really, to suggest the the sun is the center of the universe as opposed to us. And it's the same on pretty much every level uh, in terms of, because uh, I know when Freud started talking about the subconscious, that turned a few heads in very much the same way that heliocentrism did, that you know man wasn't even in control of his own mind. Uh, and, that, and especially the way that people started to talk about consciousness, that it was possible for consciousness to be elsewhere yeah, I think for for a long time, uh, especially with Judeo-Christianity, we just assumed that not only are we at the center of the universe, we're the only thing like us. And we it's impossible for anything else to be uh, like us. Our significance is paramount and unique. Right. It was sort of like this demolition of the ego of man in, in some sense, or at least one of them, um, which came about during the Copernican Revolution, which many people have heard about, which is sort of like the 1500s going into the 1600s with a few different uh, historical figures noted for that, which put uh, the sun at the centre of, well, at that time, the universe. That was the, that was the whole universe was this sun at the centre of the universe and the, uh, and the celestial bodies and the planets all um, moving around the sun. Um, and it wasn't until uh, around 1775 that Kant actually, uh, the philosopher Kant, actually proposed... Uh, um, these things called galaxies, which were disks of stars, like uh, like the, you know, basically like um, the solar system, but just on a on a star level. Um, and and he even uh, went so far as to say that some of these sort of fuzzy patches, um, some of which you know would later be you know uh, thought of as, as nebula and things like this, were actually whole other galaxies, which he called island universes. But because he was a philosopher, they didn't really take his ideas seriously. Um, I was going to so, say, did he have any evidence for that? No, he didn't, no. and he didn't really. He wasn't is, really making observations. He was kind of just like, idea. well, okay, you've got all this stuff everywhere. Mm. What if it's like the solar system, and it's like it, the whole thing is like a giant solar system with all the stars? Yeah, it's just nebulous ideas. Because I guess right. empiricism hadn't really been cemented yet, the scientific method. Yeah, this is sort of, you know, during Enlightenment, sort of yeah. just after, during, whatever. You know, we're, talk, we're talking, you know, during that sort of era where the scientific method wasn't really like a formal thing. And, and also, I mean, especially when it came to the cosmos, cosmology and the universe, um, our ability to measure these things empirically wasn't really was coming along slowly, let's say. Um, but the, the next biggest steps did come in the uh, in the 20th century. And um, one of those sort of bigger names in uh, increasing the size of our universe was, uh, some, uh, was a woman called Henrietta Levitz, who in 1912 found out a way to measure distances to things uh, by using things called standard candles. And this is where um, the idea of uh, a standard candle is essentially just a thing that is consistent enough uh, that you can use it to measure distances. And the things that she originally used were what were what called uh, Cepheid variables, which were stars that just uh, sort of pulsated um, in a certain way for various reasons. And you can use that to determine distance based on you know based on uh, how faint and whatever it is. Uh, but you couldn't really do that until you figured out exactly how bright uh, a Cepheid was at a certain distance. So unfortunately, you couldn't use it to measure distance until you knew how far away one of them was. So what you actually do is you use parallax, which is essentially where you, as the Earth moves around the sun, uh, obviously the night sky sort of changes position because the Earth is a, is a sort of a slightly different position and you, closer stars will move more relative to the Earth because of how, how the Earth is moving through space. And so you can use that 
that yearly vari variation to see which stars move the most and those and um, because of that increased parallax you can tell sort of how far away you are from those stars and then you do that with a Cepheid variable and you're like oh hang on we know exactly how bright this one is supposed to be at a given distance um and so we had a we had a standard candle and then sort of like uh, later on um, they started measuring uh, glo these globular clusters and things in the Milky Way, and suddenly the sun was no longer at the centre of the galaxy, at least uh, at least for a while. Um, although this was definitely debated, um, and it turned out that the Milky Way or the galaxy was way bigger than they first thought. Um, and the first sort of measurements using uh, these standard candles sort of coming in, and, and they started to. And it, the first sort of readings were around sort of 30,000 light years across. We'll get to sort of how much a light year is, and even though it's, it's just a really, really, really long distance. And so they were like, Jesus Christ, that's like 30,000 light years. And then eventually, using better techniques, they found out that it's they were getting measurements like 100,000 light years across. Um, and at this point, the Milky Way was still the entire universe, with this, this idea of our galaxy was still uh, the subtotal of reality. It wasn't until later on that um, essentially observations were starting to be made in Andromeda, the one of the yeah. nearest galaxies to us. They were using things like novas. Novas are basically, uh, without going into it, they're sort of where um, a, a star and it's and it's, it's it, the star nearest to it as well, star, star in the system starts pulling material off of it and that material causes like an explosion basically, or like a, you know, a big boom, a big bright light. And you can use that because it's fairly consistent. You can use that bright light as a standard candle. So you go, well, how bright was that flash? Um, well, we know how far away some of these bright flashes are. So if we look at how much fainter um, some of these even further away flashes are, we can calculate the distance. Um, and then, so they started measuring them in Andromeda. They're like, oh, hang on a minute. That's really far away. That can't be right. It wasn't until sort of like 1926 where um, Edwin Hubble actually some serious science on it um, and started to measure these, you know, these uh, little bright flashes and things in what at the time were sort of referred to as spiral nebula because they thought they were just like nebula, uh, basically these big sort of fuzzy patches in the sky. And they, he realized that, oh my God, these are, these are galaxies in their own right. These are actual whole systems of stars and they're massive. Uh, I can't, I, I don't have a, I think the figures at the time <clears throat> we're talking, he was calculating maybe 500,000 light years uh, to how far away these things are. And to reiterate some numbers again, the calculations for the top, for the Milky Way were like 100,000. So suddenly something being 500,000 light years away was like, oh my God, that's huge. And to give you reference, the actual distance to Andromeda, as you measured it now, is about 2.5 million light years away. So, you know, or five times bigger uh, distance. But at the time, this was, you know, oh my god, there are other bodies of stars, these other sort of island universes out there. Um, and, you know, going on to the 20th century, obviously our telescopes got better, our methods got better, and the universe got bigger and bigger and bigger and more galaxies until we essentially have um, what is now we started using things like type 1a uh, supernova to actually get better uh, standard candle measurements again. So we've got more consistent ways of measuring the distance to things. Um, and with that, all sorts of like crazy things happen. We discover that the, the universe is expanding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the universe became massive. Yeah, massive so quickly as well. That's, right. that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. In 100 years, we went from, you know, thinking like the Milky Way was like the, the entire universe um, to going, oh my God, like, you know, the, the observable universe uh, now, I mean, um, roughly speaking, is about 46.5 billion light years in radius. Uh, so it's like about 40, 46.5 billion light years to the edge of the observable universe. Um, yeah, and it, I mean, correlates with fucking everything. The invention of well, decent sci-fi and the decline in Christianity, it's just, you know, because it's so sobering to, to think that. 
demolition of the ego of man yeah, just yeah. continuing and compounding and yeah so you know uh these massive massive numbers start getting in and i mean that's that's just like you know talking about billions of light years already that's that's just uh, ridiculous numbers um to give you an idea and obviously that says that you know the amount of matter that's that's distributed um what's, what's called it's homogeneously and isotropically so it's relatively consistent on a macroscopic level how it looks um that is a hell of a lot of stars a hell of a lot of galaxies a hell of a lot of um potential planets <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about uh, calculating some of these um, these actual things that go into the Fermi paradox, given you know how large this universe is. And so, essentially, how they started to sort of formulate one of the one of the heuristic ways of doing this was is what often comes up is called uh, Drake's equation, or the Drake equation, I should say. It's not the Drake's equation. I keep calling it that, but it's the Drake equation, uh, which was a thing that came. It, came about in 1961 by Frank Drake. And it was just basically a way, um, he, he originally made it as a way to facilitate discussion at the first SETI meeting. Uh, SETI stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, um, which is sort of, and this Drake's equation sort of became one of the backbones of astrobiology. And it's just an approximation. It's just a way to like plug in numbers and to kind of get a, you know, start to make vague, sort of create discussion about uh, can we actually come to any idea of um, if, if like other life is out there. And so to break down this equation, essentially, it's about seven different uh, terms in it. Um, and it starts with sort of just like the, you know, it's, it's N equals and N stands for like the number of civilizations in our past light cone that we may be able to communicate with. Past light cone essentially just means um, within... It, it's more fundamental. It's, it just literally means within a fundamental uh, causal relationship so it's like because because there's because of the speed of light being sort of like essentially the speed at which causality can happen there is a limit to how how uh, how far you can communicate before it becomes impossible mm. um given given the speed of light given the expansion of the universe all these sorts of things we're actually pretty much you know if if, if ftl isn't is impossible we are restricted to at best our local group there is no possible way it's completely impossible according to our current understanding of physics to go yeah. any further because it because of what, expansion of and all way, because yeah. uh yeah and because that's just a limitation of the speed of light uh so past light cone is, is kind of like okay what's the maximum if light traveled for that distance um you know it, it, it into the into the future like can can there still be a, a causal relationship right um, so i i read this and i know i don't know if uh if this is true or this is even accurate but um there are 10,000 planets for every grain of sand on earth i don't know who's well i can't yeah, have sand. to look at the numbers of like what people think sand yeah. is and all that sort of thing um yeah i mean that i mean is, is that the observable universe does it say there uh, i've just got there are 10,000 planets for every grain of sand on earth uh that's that's yeah, in the Milky Way, right. um, and a fifth of those have an Earth-sized planet in uh, the the Goldilocks zone, which I guess we'll talk about. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about some of those numbers in a minute. I mean, like that's yeah. a good that's a good like uh, sort of place to say like how massive these numbers get and how ridiculous they get. Yeah. And, Potentially trillions um, of habitable planets. Yeah, and so the Drake equation. I mean, the factors that go into trying to calculate this, uh, like you know, are can it, the communicable distance that intelligent life could be at. Uh, is one the first one is simply the rate of star formation in our galaxy 
um, which you know kind of makes how many stars are there forming in our galaxy over a certain amount of time. Uh, the, sex, the next term is just the fraction of stars that have planets. So the next thing to sort of calculate is, okay, how many of those stars actually have planets? And then the next one to calculate, the next term is how many of those planets can actually potentially support life? The next calculation you have to do, the next probability you have to add is, um, or multiply into the equation, is the number of those planets that actually develop life. So like that's another factor we have to you, know, you have to add as a probability. The next one is that the the fraction of that life that can actually become intelligent. Yeah, it starts um, to get very vague and uh, yeah. difficult. Yeah, it's oh yeah, it's already as, as extremely vague and difficult. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's sort of, all of these things are sort of like yeah, ways to sort of discussing or thinking. Yeah, about, yeah, as, uh, an, as an approximate. Yeah, it's good groundwork. Yeah. Um, the next term is simply uh, the fraction of that in well of that intelligent life that emits detectable signs of itself into space. Um, traditionally we sort of think about that in terms of things like radio emissions and things like that um and the, the final term is simply the length of time that those detectable signs have been released into space um so it basically because of uh, the fact that again there's a fundamental limit to this uh, to the speed at which radio waves can can travel the speed of light um they have to have been traveling for a, a long if it's far or far away they have to have been traveling for a long 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 time before uh, they will become uh, detectable by us um, so those are sort of like, that's the sort of ground uh, basis by which uh, much of the calculations, well, much of the way we sort of facilitate a discussion about those. Of course, we'll talk about how there's uh, some more nuances to that equation. Yeah, so how, you, how useful later. was this at the time? Well, considering there was no real way to talk about, uh, realistically talk, even like facilitate a discussion about how you would go about calculating the probability of, of, of intelligent life out there. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I mean, it's it's useful in that sense that it is just like, okay, well, here's just a formal way of just quickly yeah, getting it, us it off the ground to a point where... frames can, the question, conceptualizes Yeah, so it. we can actually talk about uh, various things and what we think about these these particular terms in it, like whether we think they're completely uncalculable or whether we think there's actually a way we can plug in numbers and start to get an idea and so i mean our own radio waves uh that have traveled at the speed of lights is you know we've been chucking them out for about you know between 100 and 200 years now um and it's there's not only is it unclear how far these signals can go but um you know it's it's i mean that is essentially a couple hundred light years that we have a bubble around our um around earth and in the scale of the universe that is not very far <laughs> that's not very far no. at all um, I mean, Proxima Centauri is about 4.1 uh, light years away, which is the nearest star to us. Um, and aside from other stuff that we've sort of chucked out there as far as like us trying to make an impact on the universe, um, we have, you know, things like Voyager 1, which is now, I mean, 150 astronomical units away from Earth. And we'll sort of get down to what those sort of uh, scales mean. But an, a sort of astronomical unit is about 150 million kilometers, which is the distance between Earth and the sun. I think this is complete bollocks, but I heard that we we check out that, uh, da, da, na, 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 hoping that the aliens go, da, da. I, I, that's what I heard. Do we? Oh, that, that might be a weird METI thing that they do. METI is uh, Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence is what it stands for. Yeah. Uh, it's like a subset of, you know, the SETI thing where it's like people who actively broadcast Do we uh, Do we still do that? Do we, they're still like... Yeah, I think um, we do, yeah. Like I don't actually know a attempts. huge amount about METI. I know that there is... We are still broadcasting, obviously. We're still making noise. Um, as far as like active attempts to, aside from just broadcasting radio signals, I mean, yeah. the, the, I know there are places that are literally uh, sending out, com you know, messages into space deliberately just to send these radio waves out into space as like little packets of messages. And I mean, we actually sent out 
um, you know, all sorts of uh, message. I mean, the, the first two Pioneer probes, that was 1972, 1973. We had like little aluminium plaques on them with like loads of information about, you know, us and who we were. Some of them you may have seen. The more famous one, you've mm. probably seen at the Voyager Golden Records. Um, that a lot of people have seen, which were just little, little phonograph records that had like... Um, sounds and images and it was just basically just like a, a, a catalog of the diversity of life on earth and our culture um sort of like a t- it's a time capsule basically you seen that fucking terrible film pixels no i haven't the aliens uh basically come across like a time capsule of like retro games and they think it's like a threat so they they it's an adam sandler film and it's fucking awful and and <laughs> They like the aliens like take the form of like Pac Man and Donkey Kong and like destroy us. Uh, yeah, it's fucking wow. Useless. I'm film. I'm so happy. I know that now. Yeah, yeah. great. The more you know, <laughs> the more you know. Yeah. Um. So moving on to like actually trying to calculate, like you're you're mentioning how many of these planets uh, there are um, potentially, and. I mean, in the observable universe itself, like going off again, we're, we're already going to go off with just crazy numbers that are complete sort of like massive error bars on these. Like I often like to preface on things we don't really know, but giving it a good guess, uh, the number I've managed to pull is a billion trillion stars in the observable universe. So that's, I mean, that's 10 followed by 18 zeros. Yes, I mean, that's just Something, yeah. um, ridiculous. Yeah. I, I, so I've got here that uh, yes, it's two months after... The Drake equations sort of came out. Um, Harvard University astronomer uh, Harlow Shapley uh, basically calculated the number of suns in the local group. Yeah. So as I sort of said before about the sort of history of um, uh, our size and the universe, like Shapley was actually a big part of um, that story in terms of like measuring distance. I mean, originally he actually. Um, I believe if it uh, was Shapley, I believe he was the one who was actually a proponent of the uh, Milky Way being the universe. Um, he was actually originally okay. against the idea of there being all these, you know, the universe being this massive um, uh, thing with lots of, you know, island universes, so to speak. Mm. Um, and there was there was a whole great big debate staged around that as well, which was um, kind of interesting. So what was your original thing about Shapley again? Uh, so 10 million, million, million suns and one in a million of those has planets around it right so i mean the, so the modern calculations for the local group which is sort of again our sphere of influence that within reason is kind of in our past light cone um that's galaxies like andromeda and there's triangulum which is like the third biggest sort of structure in in the local group and things like that i mean I have absolutely no idea. I couldn't really, I don't think anyone can really know because there's so much of our local group that's absolutely obscured to us <clears throat> to even detect. Um, but Andromeda, for example, has a trillion stars in it. Uh, Triangulum has like a 40 billion. Um, but focusing on like the Milky Way, we've got up to about 400 billion stars and sort of as low as about 100 billion um, stars in the Milky Way uh, to give you an idea. The observable universe that massive again, like a billion, like just a ridiculous number. But um, focusing it on to sort of, you know, where the question is, okay, alien life within possibility of, of travel and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we're talking hundreds of billions of stars. And so the next thing you factor into that calculation, okay, we've got hundreds of billions of stars. Um, the next one we want to figure out um, uh, is essentially well, how many planets are there? Um, how many 
Earth-like worlds are there even. And so there, there are a few interesting ideas on how we start to like uh, pass uh, this question. I mean, one interesting uh, idea is actually this idea of the galactic habitable zone. So you, you may have heard of a habitable zone around a star, the point at which liquid water can form and it's not, um, it's not too close uh, to be tightly locked and all that sort of thing. Um, and there is actually sort of a theoretical, and this is kind of like a hypothetical thing that's been, uh, I'll get into the sort of criticisms of it, but there's, there's a sort of habitable zone in our galaxy that essentially um, is, is about factors that, uh, like metallicity and the rates of supernovas. So if there's loads of like supernovas going on, loads of explosions and things like that, obviously that's going to create a much more tumultuous um, situation for a lot of planets. Um, you, you can have things like, uh, if you're too close to like a supermassive black hole, uh, like Sagittarius A in the centre of our um, galaxy, uh, that that can you know emit tons of radiation, um, like high frequency radiation, and also you can have like in really really high sort of star density areas, like in the bars or like closer to the centre, um, you can have more sort of gravitational perturbations. So you can have you know as more stars kind of interact with each other, that can like you know cause uh, um, disturbances and things like the Oort cloud and things like around our solar system. You just basically cause shit to fly everywhere. Um, and that can create more uh, potential impact events uh, for meteorites and things like this. So there's a sort of zone where you don't want too much density, and you and it's the sort of and you want metals, you want uh, th- you want certain elements uh, to also be abundant. So it's more likely for these sort of um, these metal rocky world like terrestrial planets to actually form. Um, and it's uh, some of the one of the numbers I actually sort of was came across. It could be as low. I think it was between ten and twenty percent of all stars are in the galactic habitable zone. So that's already like you know really narrowing the search. If we think about this as like a, a reasonable idea, but it, it has been sort of criticised. I mean, apparently you know there's there's things to say like stars do do actually migrate quite a lot in the uh, solar system, or possibly do. Um, and also, it's it's like quite poorly defined what the what the the exact criteria for what would make a habitable zone whether it even is like a, a reasonable assumption to say that a, a star or a system has to be within the habitable zone in order for um planets to be more likely to be habitable but it's right. you know it's another way to sort of uh, think about it but taking all the sort of all these sort of stars that may work we need to actually find the right kind of stars as well um and so our sun is what's called a g-type um star which is just a, a type of star it's a, um, a yellow thing um and it's relatively stable it's sort of like in the middle period of its life it's not you know it's not going completely mental um i mean like proxima centauri for example which is a um it's a red dwarf it's it's basically um a lot of the planets around that are very inhospitable, or at least you know, from what we currently know about them, are not great candidates uh, for being able to be habitable as far as we know because of things like solar wind, because it's quite a violent star. It just emits yeah. loads of crap. It's quite it's quite violent. So how even how typical is our star? Uh, pretty damn pretty damn boring. Yeah. We uh, uh, G-types, uh, or at least uh, sort of main sequence, as they're called, these sort of like uh, these stars that are fairly... Um, yeah, our sun is very boring. It's very typical um, in our um, in our galaxy. And so, um, so there's a lot of <clears throat> G-type stars. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot yeah. of them. I mean, assuming uh, essentially the figure I've seen a nine percent figure, which I think is more of an older figure for the total number of stars being in this G- G-type category. Uh, the one I've seen that's from a more recent uh, um, thing I read was set about seven percent of all stars are sort of G-type in our. Um, in our galaxy so assuming that and assuming a mid-range so assuming a mid-range value we you know we said earlier that the, the milky way has between about 100 and 500 billion stars in it so let's say about 
about 200, 250 billion stars. Um, that's about 17.5 would be in this, this particular G-type star that's not particularly uh, violent. Um, and up to a maximum, let's say there's like 500 billion, that's like the 28 billion G-type stars, and that could be as low as about 7 uh, uh, billion G-types, just to give you some some like idea of the error bars on, on these sorts of calculations. And then within that, uh, due to sort of recent observations of, of exoplanets and things like this, we've, we've started to come to an idea of um, roughly about 1 in 5 of these stars will probably have sort of Earth-like rocky planets. Yeah. Um, so that it, the factor is about 0.18 um, uh, of these stars will have. So let's take those numbers again and plug in the maximum. Let's say, okay, um, we plug in, what's our maximum? We were talking about 17.5 billion was like the upper bound. So taking that, um, the maximum number of uh, these habitable worlds would probably be around 5 billion. Um, basically less than 6 billion in a habitable zone. So even if, um, yeah, even if 0.1 percent of those had life we'd still be talking about fucking a lot you know a lot of planets yeah no that's, i mean that's a huge huge number i mean it's, it's, it's narrowing down but it's still a massive massive number we're talking billions i mean so the mid-range estimates about three billion and the, just the minimum bound that i could sort of if, if all these numbers are not looking great we're talking about a billion, you know, at, at yeah. minimum, you know, a billion, maybe a tiny bit less if the galactic habitable zone thing has more merit to it. But yeah, yeah, I'm just going to go back to that. Um, how do we know uh, about things like solar winds? Like, how are our instruments that refined? How are we actually getting that information? Is it well, studying the sun? I mean, like we yeah. have, uh, I mean, there's like things like the Parker Solar Probe. Um, there's, I can't remember the name of the mission now, which is bugging me, but there's fairly recently we, we launched uh, a, a sun mission that's going to be uh, one of the man-made objects that's going to get closest to the sun and do a lot of um, direct observations. So studying our um, sun. And yeah, studying our sun. Extrapolating that onto Mostly, others, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's probably where we mostly know things about stuff. Obviously, we can learn a lot from looking at things like the spectra of stars, which is the type, the sort of, essentially the color of light it emits, or like the 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 frequencies of the uh, of the particular light it emits. And we can use that uh, based on what we sort of know about stars and things to figure out stuff like what is the process going on inside them um, and how these and how these things would like uh, uh, would behave. Um, so yeah, some, a lot of it's observational based on our own sun. I mean, we can obviously look to a certain extent to the effects that stars, um, other stars have and things like this. Mm. Um, yeah, we, we know we don't know everything and like again we we can't there's still lots of things to figure out especially about like the extreme ends of um yeah. well, i guess you see a fucking supernova and you know that okay that's probably not going to be conducive to life yeah yeah well yeah giant massive solar system size explosion probably yeah yeah <laughs> probably uh not great for life um well unless you're talking the aftermath of it forming planets in a new system but um yeah so taking those numbers in we got at least a billion as up to um up to like nearly 30 billion you know uh, these earth-like planets that are in sort of habitable zones um and taking those and this is by the way excluding things like uh moons um we're excluding uh other potential things we're really sort of narrowing it down here like i i sort of like gave the local group a go but we have no we don't just don't have enough data on like how many stars in the local group so but i i, I would say we, we're talking about um you know potentially hundreds of billions of these earth-like worlds just in the local group um so right so the next the next sort of 
parameter, I guess, that's like one of the other sort of defining features of the Drake equation is the biological aspect of it, is the idea. Um, we've got like this massive, massive number of potential sites for which life um, can arise. So, you know, how does life arise? You know, I mean, is it, um, we, what, what do we know about life on Earth? What do we know about how things actually uh, kicked off here? Can that tell us anything about the likelihood of life developing on other worlds? Um, before we do, I'm, just, I'm literally just going to set a definition for life. This is NASA's definition for life. This is what we're going to be talking about for life, because obviously at the limit of how we define life, that is a whole uh, another podcast in itself. We'd, potentially, that would be an interesting podcast to do. What is life? Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of people who are, you know, furiously debating this question and trying to find a better definition for what we call life, especially when we get to the limit of things like viruses and um, and the origins of life. But for now, life is a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. That's nice. That sets us a nice little uh, parameter. And essentially, all our cells are made of chains of amino acids uh, which fold into proteins and things like this. Um, and our, we have DNA, which is replicated through RNA, um, which is made into these proteins. These, these amino acid chains are converted into these proteins that build us up. And this is roughly what's called the, the central dogma of biology, very, very roughly. Um, and so going into sort of like proposed origins for life, I, I think the leading candidate, um, certainly there hasn't, at the moment, there isn't really, uh, there's a nuance to this, but um, at the moment, what we think the origin of life kind of uh, one of the hypotheses for how all this this sort of you know pillar of biology kicked off um is what's called the rna world hypothesis and so it's thought that there was some you know primordial soup uh, which we which everything sort of kicked off in which is essentially just like a a chemical environment in which there's lots of these things called nucleotides, which are the building blocks of of RNA and um, um, and eventually DNA. Um, and you first thing you need are these nucleotides. You need them to start sticking together. You need them to start bonding. Um, and the RNA world hypothesis essentially says, well, if you get some of these RNA chains, RNA is like sort of like DNA split in half. It's got a different nucleotide DNA. One of the nucleotides is different. Um, but all you need to know is it's a bunch of it's a bunch of different nucleotides, four different combinations you can make, and you can get chains of them. And they can bond with other nucleotides and things like this. And so you have a basic thing that's swimming around in the suit, picking up nucleotides, creating chains, whatever. And so essentially what you get from that, what, what the hypothesis sort of suggests is that, okay, you've got this thing all happening stochastically. Um, so it's maybe we can assume that some RNA strands that are more stable, are stronger at surviving and sticking together, would be more likely to stick around. And then, um, you know, extend that um, extend that idea, maybe some, because because these um, RNA chains can, uh, you know, stick up, stick nucleotides to themselves or encourage nuclear, a more nucleotide kind of environment, um, they can start copying themselves. And there's mechanisms through which this RNA can actually... Um, uh, can actually start um, copying itself. And then, obviously, you've got a sort of Darwinian mechanism going on there where this this copying process can eventually lead to something. And obviously, there's there's a clear threshold here that we don't really know about. This That's just, a, that's just again, that's a hypothesis that leads at some point um, into an actual cell, an actual um, um, an environment which... Uh, some sort of lipid structure that basically creates a barrier between this process of copying and the outside world. We know that these sort of structures of, uh, um, you know, if, if molecules want to, if they're sort of dipolar, so to speak, they so that, or they're like, um, uh, essentially one side of the molecule um, is, uh, I can't remember the word now, but it, it doesn't like water. <laughs> the other side likes water. Um, hydrophilic, hydrophobic, sorry. Um, 
if, if they clump together, obviously they're going to want to keep the water out. So you can see how naturally these things with these properties might actually just create these little membranes and things just by happenstance because of their um, because of their properties and at some point perhaps you get rna structures you get these weird things that are like replicating or creating a more um, rna-ish kind of environment and uh, selecting for themselves end up inside these cells yada 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 at some point uh somehow that's how you start to get uh actual cells and life and and very telling very me, tell me prometheus it isn't real oh no Ridley is, Scott. It, is it not giant big blue men, blue men <laughs> giant blue blue men yeah well i mean yeah. so obviously the question, this, the question is, is, is this is a hypothesis so ridley yeah. scott's hypothesis is a hypothesis as well that it was giant blue men i, I mean you, you pick one you know that film is many things I, a hypothesis probably isn't one of them but um yeah so obviously the question is is this process um is it unique to our world and is it uh is it something that can happen on other planets well unfortunately that you know the selection biases here this is given what we <clears throat> can piece together this is what we think is like the most uh, currently the most likely hypothesis for how this stuff uh, came about but the problem with that is obviously uh, we're limited to knowing this about the particular chemical conditions in which this arose so we can only assume well okay well it, we need these we need these nucleotides we need these amino amino acids around to build proteins um, and we need particularly particular conditions in which these uh, chemical compounds can actually survive and not break down or not, not just get completely yeeted. How, uh, far, can, how far can that stretch though? Because obviously there's things like cockroaches. Is that, how far is that stretching, the, the, you know, what is needed for life to exist? Mm. Yeah. Is, well, is that... This is the thing is we'll get into that, but like exactly that's, exactly that's one of the things is we don't know. But of course, if we're going if we're being very, very rigid and going, okay, well, we know this is how it happens. And we're like, well, okay, yeah. um, if we if this is our criteria for how life starts, it has to be something like this because this is the only mechanism we know of. Of course, there's there's a bias there because we because we are the only sample size we have of life. Yeah. Um, I suppose we're talking about intelligent life as well. It, yeah. Right. And then there's, yeah, there's, there's further and, on, and but as far space as- Space-faring yeah. life and right. life that's capable of communicating with uh, us. Yeah. There's no, no good thinking about like uh, uh, C- creatures or whatever because it's right. not really what the fermi paradox is hmm. addressing right but we're starting yeah. off yeah. with our assumptions of okay well this is a mechanism we know life is here so we know that at very least in our sample size of one this is kind of what life looks like and this is what um life kind of is so the conditions in which it arose um are the only conditions we know of in which it can arise so it's you know that's that is a big assumption that we have to make or at least we do make not everyone does and that's you know we'll get into that in a minute um, to give you a sort of timeline of what sort of happens i mean this is this is all we're talking um right at sort of the end of what's called the hadean which is like this about 4.5 to uh, 4 to 4.5 billion years ago you know right at sort of the verge of when the earth started to become what we would call habitable or, or you know uh, suitable for these conditions to happen and potentially this rna was sort of floating around around 4 billion years ago and and it's kicked off this um kicked off this whole process and at at around what's called the archaean we start to see things like the first fossil evidence for prokaryotes um which is the first sort of actual uh place we can start to go okay this is where prokaryotes exist prokaryotes I should say are, are basically bacteria they're um essentially a, a cell with which doesn't have a nucleus it's just sort of like a, a cell that pisses around um <laughs> And prokaryotes uh, were like, you know, the, the very first thing that's like much more recognizable for what we would say is life now. Um, that's about 3.5 billion years ago um, in, in the sort of Archean eon. 
Um, I keep seeing articles, and I don't know if they're real or not, uh, bloody asteroids from Mars and pieces, mm. moon rock and stuff that are like mm. might have things on them that might like lead to life and things. Uh, is any of that? Is there any truth right. in any of that? Or well, so I think. There's there's a few things that people there's a few things in there. I think uh, one of them is uh, I don't think you're talking about uh, is panspermia, which is the idea that life came from an asteroid or another world. Uh, we'll get get into that right. in in a bit. Um, but yeah, I think what you want to be talking about is like when they discover things like amino acids yeah. and or, or what's uh, even more generally they discover organic compounds, which are essentially the things you need in order to start building these building blocks that right. life. Yeah. Exist, life we as we know of needs to exist and so what you'll generally uh probably be hearing is the fact that they've discovered some of these chemical properties like they've discovered amino acids or they've yeah. discovered like and you know that doesn't mean life um but it's just it's like the ingredients like, for life it's it's an ingredient you could you yeah you might need so it's like we can see that you know these these um these particular chemicals don't aren't like unique to earth certainly not um i mean even even recently we discovered uh some um, some amino acids in like this is actually within the last couple of days so this is some fresh news um off the podcast uh, i mean it's the first of november now okay it was the last couple of days uh there's been like some reports on amino acids in venus uh, venus's atmosphere oh, which doesn't topical. necessarily implicate anything but it's just like oh that's cool so there's actually um mm. you know there's actually some interesting things before that uh obviously there was a, a discovery of phosphorus and we're still trying to piece together how the hell uh phosphorus actually ended up on venus and because at the moment we only know of um mechanisms non-biological mechanisms to produce it phosphine um sorry um uh, we only know of non-biological uh, processes that uh, couldn't exist on venus like we, we actually see it on in places like jupiter and whatever but we know that's because of the extreme conditions there uh, so that's that's an interesting ongoing thing uh but yeah so like yeah, well, a lot of what you're probably hearing about is like, yeah, they're just they're discovering some of these chemicals or something that doesn't have necessarily anything to do with life. That just means that you know, yeah, just means it's got some of the same chemicals that early Earth did, and perhaps these you know organic compounds and amino acids and things are not as rare in the universe as um, you know as we as we maybe might might have thought. Um, and so sort of moving forward, you know, the, these cells, like the next sort of big event, I guess, uh, sort of zipping forward through billions of years, which, by the way, is a massive amount of time for, for life to just be sort of these single, little single-celled things, um, is essentially when you when eukaryotes happened. And eukaryotes are essentially what we're made of, they're what plants are made of, they're what bees are made of, they're what fungus is made of, they're what literally, um, you know, for, I mean, it's still... In biomass, they're about equal to prokaryotes. But prokaryotes, as in like bacteria and things like that, are still uh, the dominant. They're still far more prokaryotes than eukaryotes. But in terms of like biomass, eukaryotes are like you know are, are, are still big players. <laughs> um, and obviously, you get all the variation of life um, that we sort of observe directly um, uh, in our general lives are eukaryotes. Um, so. Eukaryotes are essentially basically where you get, they're defined as just a cell with like a closed nucleus because uh, prokaryotes don't have that. And um, they also are frequently have like other what are called organelles, um, which are like essentially little cells, little cells in themselves inside uh, this bigger cell. Um, and the event that this is about two billion years ago, we think that the first roughly, very, very roughly about two billion years, um, that first eukaryotes came onto the scene. And it's, and it's, we again the proposed hypothesis is simply at some point um a small a little cell went into another bigger cell and then it went oh i'm still alive 
cool, <laughs> let's work together. And then they just, and then suddenly you get things like mitochondria or um, in the case of, um, in the case of like animalia and things like this. Um, or, and we, we actually know that this happened independently at least three times. These cells got into another cell because the second example, we have the chloroplasts, which are essentially the, the equivalent of mitochondria, um, but for the plant world. So at some point, um, uh, another little cyanobacteria got into a sort of got into a cell and started converting light into energy. And the, the cell was like, oh, cool, dude, I'm not going to break you down and eat you. I'm actually just going to eat like somehow <laughs> they didn't just eat each other. They, it started a, a, a um, um, this like weird little relationship. I I read somewhere um, life basically originated from four places, four uh, genuses or whatever. Um, only one of them now exists. We have evidence of the other three, um, and that's kind of why you know, sort of two eyes, spine, whatever. Eighty percent of life is one one set, and then. Two of them are extinct, and the other one is like deep sea creatures. So that's like the oh, other, right. the other we're, 20%. Yeah, we're, we're going right down to like phyla and things like this, yeah. I think now. Um, so, I mean, yes. obviously, there, there's lots of different divisions uh, for life. You know, you've got things like what I'm sort of talking about now is, yeah, is I know you're, like yeah, the kingdoms, and then you've got yeah. like, like domain kingdom, and then like class, and then phyla, and then it goes on and on. <laughs> I, can't really, yeah. I can't name all of them off the top of my head. Um, but essentially, yeah. Um, Depending on where your measuring stick is, yes. Um, if you look further back enough, you'll find that like the vast majority of, of a particular clade or phyla or whatever um, has has been condensed down to a, a small set of, of a branch that it, it sort of came across. Um, and at, at this sort of resolution, we're talking about um, talking about a domain, basically, kind of kingdom, um, which is essentially where. Uh, the separation between these two very different kinds of cells. Um, the third one uh, in, in in this being uh, archaea, which is slightly different. They're just they're sort of like extremophiles and things. They're, they're weird bacteria, basically. Um, and so, like this 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 eukaryotic cell thing is what is um, this theory is sort of called endosymbiosis. In fact, fairly recently, there's been some interesting stuff about um, viruses uh, in having some kind of role. I know there's there was there's proposed theories called like viral. Um, uh, eukaryogenesis which is like where viruses also have a role to play in this weird cells all working together thing um and so that's another weird event and that led to all of animal life you know very quickly after eukaryotes that's where you get multicellular life multicellular life not a thing and then eukaryotes rock on and within you know uh let's try and find a sort of timeline for this within i think it was like a couple hundred million years um yeah about half a billion years so 500 million years after eukaryotes you start getting multiple which relatively speaking it's billions of years of just bacteria um okay eukaryotes kick you know start up and then you got 500 million years multicellular life starts um starts becoming a thing um and then there's just like this you know uh, things really start kicking off then you've got you the sexual reproduction fungi um eventually plants and animals start appearing this is all going through what's called the uh, proterozoic sorry uh, which is about 2.5 to about um uh, 0.5 billion years ago 500 million years ago um and then already we've we've covered like four billion years already and we've only just got to like things really kicking off um and this is where we enter the phanerozoic which is everyone's heard of the cambrian explosion 540 uh, 41 million years ago roughly um this is when uh we start to see all the major phyla of animals all, you know, um, all kicking off and um, this massive amount of diversity occurring. Um, and 
from then on, we don't we, we don't have to go through every fucking <laughs> every era of of biology here. But yeah, essentially, yeah. this is that's sort of like the story of life, and you can tell already that there's massive timescales involved. We're talking billions of years. Not only that, but you know, with billions of years, there has to be a few you know a few criteria in there that have to go right for this to happen. And some things that on you know on, as far as these timescales are concerned, it look kind of un you know it's a long time for things to yeah. only be in one particular way. And I think as um, we as we talk about intelligence that whole time scale thing is going to come back again and yeah i time scales are very important to this conversation i think hmm. right well let's let's just talk about an intelligent life before we start getting this to the last little bit before we start talking about uh like solutions to this paradox um by the way i opened your beer and um oh thank you uh we're on an hour Oh, good. We're almost at the answers, so that's fine. <laughs> almost there. Okay. Um, so, I mean, intelligence in evolution, that's that's sort of like the next thing I guess we can start to talk about is um, the fact that we also only really have one example. We only have one example of human-level intelligence in, in evolution. Um, and it is... It's one of those things where, you know, looking at it on, at face value, it's it may actually require a lot of luck for us with these ridiculously oversized brains to come about. There's no examples of what's called convergent evolution with our level of intelligence, where you just got these brains that are just on a you know on a ridiculous, are capable of a ridiculous level of abstraction. Um, brick brains are like extremely highly demanding in terms of energy and mass. Like it's it's kind of crazy like how much energy we've we've like teched into evolutionarily just to keep these things running. Um, and not only that, but like it means we have massive heads, which are kind of annoying. Um, it means like you know it causes problems with giving birth. It means that our infants are just like completely useless for a long time, as we have a really long sort of development period compared to a lot of animals. Yeah, I mean you look um, at a, a gazelle, it's like a half a day old and it can run like as fast as a sprinter. Right, it's crazy. What the fuck can you do with that? <laughs> Crime. Yeah, literally nothing, yeah. Um, and not only that, but we also, um, we're lucky we have cultural evolution as well. It's like, it's not just the fact that we, we're born and we're computers. It's like, that's not good if you can't pass down information, if you can't build on a collective understanding. So that's, you know, another another really important step into um, our, you know, processes as in, in intelligent beings. Extended phenotypes and things. Mm, yeah. Yes. Something yes. I know. Yeah, I think we mentioned that briefly in our... Uh, it's what, what is what is philosophy? I think that's, oh, right, that okay. episode, Some yeah. re- somehow that's got like got into what is philosophy. Yeah, I mean, it took us about two hundred thousand years uh, to get where we are now, evolutionarily speaking, with with the first sort of hominids and things. And you know, all of this is is a big lucky. We need a big lucky streak uh, to get you know to get to that point without potentially going extinct. And it's yeah, and humans are weird. So you know, that's roughly. I would say all the random criteria that we just just to set a basis for like all the things that go into this idea of the Fermi paradox. Like, okay, why aren't there aliens? Given all these things, you know, we we see life on Earth, and there's just there's an astronomical number of potential sites for life to exist. So, what are some of the answers proposed to the paradox. Why haven't we come across any aliens yet? And I'll just rattle off the titles of how I've sort of categorized some of them. And then, then okay. we'll we'll talk about it. So we'll, we'll unpack some of them. And, uh, you can, and then I can shut the fuck up for a bit. <laughs> we can actually have take, a take discussion. a breath, take a breath, and have a beer. Yeah, yeah I can actually yeah, drink a bit. Um, so I mean, the first one uh, I would put under the category of sort of rare earth hypothesis, which is a sort of separate thing. But rare earth hypothesis is essentially 
just in a word, we are super lucky um, to have these particular conditions um, in which uh, life, there's like loads and loads of factors that go into Earth being uh, a perfect sort of, you know, uh, place for life to evolve. And that's quite rare. Another one, um, which we'll dig into in a moment, is great filters. Um, we'll get into the, what those are and what those mean in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, there's essentially... I just put literally a bullet point of we lucked out so far on previous extinction events, which is kind of like filters in the past. Like we've already passed some things that should have killed us, uh, but somehow mm. we got we got lucky and got through them. And ordinarily that should happen much more often or something. Um, another one I have is that they um, that aliens out there are uh, just think that we're too primitive. Well, actually, we're too primitive to send out messages uh, that are actually detectable to advanced civilizations. So like, our radio waves they just, yeah, they just don't even care. It's like, like sending Morse code out to uh, a world of, of bloody Snapchat and things. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm such an old man, but like, <laughs> I still use Morse code. Yeah, you, that's how I knew what time to come here. Yeah, yeah. to do the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I sent you signal back in smoke signals, and yeah. Um, um, another one is so intelligent life eventually does not broadcast much radio signals as their technology becomes more advanced and noiseless. So this just basically is like the what we're detecting. We're looking for signals that an advanced civilization may actually just not be leaking out anymore because of things like maybe they just start using much more noiseless technology that just doesn't leak as much shit into the universe. Um, maybe they do use stuff like neutrinos to actually communicate uh, information. Uh, things like this. They all use steam and magnets. Yeah. Uh, I've got a whole category here, which I'm not going to... Uh, I'm just going to give you the title, which will break into the different ones in this category, but I've just put Sneaky Aliens. <laughs> one of the, there's lots of different ones under this category uh, to do with why they're sort of essentially hiding from us. Um, another one is uh, sort of loss of motivation that I sort of have another thing which um, can essentially be to do with a civilization essentially at some point, for whatever reason, and we'll get into different one categories of how this can happen, just have no motivation to go out into the universe travel expand do anything anymore um there's just they don't there's no longer a point for them to do it um another one is essentially uh simulation hypothesis stuff so <laughs> you know uh, we're getting down that rabbit hole but it's uh, what's broadly under this category called the planetarium hypothesis which is to do with um well it's a simulation so you know that oh, more or less sort of yeah, answers yeah. itself you know that's why there's nothing around because it's, it's been designed this way um uh, another one would be interstellar travel may actually be even more technologically unfeasible or even impractical uh, than we actually think despite uh, the rate of innovation we may actually find oh it's sort of you know interstellar travel on over vast distances obviously we can't go uh, as far as we know faster than light but even over sort of long time periods slowly expanding out we may actually find that it's just so economically impractical um that it's actually we're, we're not really properly calculating the um uh, the capacity for even advanced civilization to travel out and the final one i've just got qx files theme they're already here <laughs> that's the other answer lizards yeah so those are all the sort of different ones um is there any particular one that you want to sort of break down first or sort of talk about a bit which we meant do great filters yes we'll i think i think filters is a good place to start because yeah. yeah it frames a lot more of the, the stuff so yeah they are uh, like you said they're they're grouped uh, differently you've got uh, filters of the past so uh what are some of these events that we've supposedly uh bypassed and we kind of haven't realized our own luck well what are some examples of those 
Right. Um, on here, I've, I've sort of got filters in the future, filters in the past. So in the past category, um, we've got major extinction events um, that uh, are pretty, yeah, pretty crazy. Let me just like bring up all the different uh, extinction events I've got on here somewhere. So we've had, we've had a few. Them all. Um, but essentially, there are... Um, oh, it's all in the Phanerozoic category. There you go. Yeah, Phanerozoic era, uh, era is basically just animals till now, essentially, like since Precambrian explosion to now. And since then, we've had. I mean, the way we categorize extinctions again is kind of an extinction is. Kind 50, of it's fifty years, defined. isn't it? Is it? No, it's, it's vaguely defined. It's just literally a massive loss of life over a certain period of time. It, there isn't really. It's just a massive event in the fossil record where there was some kind of. Um, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of fossils that are suddenly going extinct. Um, and these these can take uh, place over millions of years. Extinctions can actually take a long, long time. It's just that the rate of extinction massively increases. It's, you know, it's a spike in a graph over a long period of time. Uh, that's why they say things like, we're actually in a mass extinction right now, because even though you don't see like birds dropping out the sky, um, if you take a longer time span, you think about all the animals that are going extinct during the sort of you know, last few hundred thousand years. Um, there's a lot, but it's just oh, spread over time, so you don't necessarily notice it as much, but it's still a mass extinction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so one of the well, yeah, first... Shit like hedgehogs and um, Tasmanian wolf. Tasmanian wolf's gone. Yeah. Oh, no, I've got like a whole... I've actually just go going to like human. I've, I have a table I just pulled off Wikipedia, which is just literally the last 5,000 years. And you, we've got um, the last members of a dwarf race of woolly mammoths went around 4,000 years ago, around 600 years ago. We've got the, the mower and its predator, which is an eagle, died out in New Zealand. Then we've got a few hundred years ago. We've got um, the last wild, um, whatever the hell that is. I don't even know how to pronounce that. Went extinct. <laughs> and then, you know, <laughs> along with the dodo, yeah, yeah that was yeah. You know, another thing a few hundred years ago we all know about. Stella sea cow, which is just some uh, you know accurate uh, well, there, well, there, there are tons of like subspecies going extinct all the time aren't there like uh like butterflies and things we don't notice and oh yeah i mean apparently yeah there's obviously projections for extinction rates for things we don't even notice yeah like yeah. insects particularly in um yeah small creatures which is hard to quantify i mean in terms of like megafauna you know we've got um stuff yeah. like the pa passenger pigeon 100 years ago died out um by uh, the tiger white rhino is probably one of the most oh recent, yeah, the, the, one, um, the most recent one I've got on this list is the Western Black Rhinoceros. Uh, Ten years ago, was declared extinct. Um, I think there's, yeah, I think the particular type of white rhino was extinct, but I think there might have been one in captivity, or they might have recovered something there. Um, I can't remember the exact story, but yeah, just to I mean, give you yeah, an idea, like species do go extinct all the time. It's like mm. not, it's not that's not just like a human thing. Like ninety nine percent of all species are gone now. Um, yeah. So, all, so yeah. It, I guess. Yeah. I guess the the relevance of this is, well, that could have very easily happened to humans. Humans could have just been mm. one of these. Right. On the we list. could have. Uh, are we just in a lucky time period where none of these events that have triggered uh, a particular either massive natural catastrophe, a change in the environment? Again, the, this is a whole topic that I would actually love to do as a whole podcast is mass extinctions because it is a great rabbit hole to go down. Um, and there's a lot of speculation around how they happened and all that sort of thing, which is great fun. Uh, but essentially, yeah, there there are major mass extinctions. That I'll, I'll mention one of them: the, the big boy, the Great Dying, which was 251 million years ago, which was sort of like in the in the border between what was called the Permian and the Jurassic, sort of going between uh, the Phanerozoic and the uh, the Mesozoic, which is you know Mesozoic dinosaurs, uh, Phanerozoic stuff before dinosaurs, uh, Cambrian explosion up to dinosaurs, um, and this. During this time, 96% of all species died off uh, just during this one extinction. It's just absolutely bonkers. 
Um, and it, it ended up uh, setting the scene for the Mesozoic where the dinosaurs sort of came up. And one that we probably are quite familiar with is the one 66 million years ago, uh, which was the end of the Cretaceous period, that that particular mass extinction in which 76% of Wait, the Which one was the meteorite? Uh, well, that that was the last. That yeah, was the, yeah, that yeah. one. Yeah, the end of the Cretaceous period. So we we that was a, a meteorite that we found evidence for um, in the Gulf of Mexico. So we actually have pretty good evidence that it was a a, a meteor that slammed into Earth. Um, and basically, uh, that's what worked at the dinosaurs and set the stage for mammals, which set the stage eventually for us. And you know, and then these crazy, weird, big brain creatures that can can, can do mathematics suddenly come out of nowhere. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, that is a tiny fraction of history, like the last couple hundred thousand years compared to four billion, which is like you know, since yeah. and, and think about what percentage I talk about billions of years of bacteria, and then like two hundred thousand years of humans. Um, I guess so, like ice ages and things as well. Or a- a part of the extinction right yeah like yeah. massive yeah environmental changes super think, volcanoes yeah you think how fucking hostile um, the actual nature is we don't really notice it because we're always fucking sat inside doing podcasts and bollocks mm. but it, yeah nature is incredibly hostile and I, yeah it's uh yeah it's fucking it's amazing that we're still right well that's why we have houses and all, yeah all literally because christ we don't want to be um you know in nature really um but yeah so to go back to your point, like mass extinctions, like the, the nature of these mass extinctions could be so many ones that we don't. And again, it, sort of talking about that we have known unknowns. We have like, well, there could be an asteroid, there could be a super volcano. There's also possibly unknown unknowns. There aren't there aren't necessarily things that we know about, which we can't really quantify because that's the whole nature of an unknown unknown. There are things we can't quantify that may well, uh, we may have well have just lucked out on, but we'll never know what those things necessarily were. We just know that there's all these sorts of events that can trigger out massive extinctions and huge changes in the, in the environment uh, that could give, you know, completely, almost, almost wipe out. You know, these, these things can like really uh, rattle life or just send us straight back to, you know, prokaryotes again. You know, maybe, maybe even like a, a large proportion of uh, multicellular life can get wiped out. Um, and so, yeah, these extinction events are a good example of like filters that we've passed, but we don't necessarily have a good idea of how much we lucked out on that. Like, how, are there things that uh, we should have, uh, you know, we've we've lucked out since the last couple, as in human evolution timescales? Are we are we lucky right now? You know, yeah, uh, there's this really whole uh, question as to whether consciousness is a evolutionary dead end for various reasons. So, so we move on uh, from that to filters of the future, I guess. Hmm. Uh, Barriers we're yet to overcome. Uh, a large majority of them, I guess, have to do with our own development and our own activity. Um, it does intelligent life lead to self-destruction, I guess. Right. Well, what's a good example of one of these, like, into us destroying ourselves? Climate change, nuclear war, AI, I think are the big three. Yeah. No, that's that's a good little selection of things. Like, there's, there's a, broadly speaking, there's, like, technology which is one category where it's like we either, whether that's like an AI singularity that happens, you know, happens to be something that ends up perverse instantiation, all that sort of yeah, thing. And we talked about bad things happen, which we've talked about. Um, or even more generally, just like we literally just switch on a machine that's just like a great machine and we don't really, we just don't know enough physics. There's something missing, I think, and we just end up just blowing ourselves up somehow. It's like we just break something without any knowledge of it doing. You know, one example. That fucking collider thing. The, the Hadron Collider, well, yeah. Right. Um, well, that, yeah, because I remember that circulating in the newspapers. I mean, that was like, re- that, you know, again, these, we're talking, it was talking about like, oh, there's a one in nothing, there's one in a ridiculous number of uh, numbers chance that it could create a black hole or something. But that was like going off of 
a theoretical framework that could potentially do it yeah, if yeah. that theoretical framework well, to be yeah, and I even then don't we think, don't know if I don't like... think CERN would have turned it on it was like it was a one in four chance it could kill us oh go on do it go on press it maybe a laugh go on then banter <laughs> no <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that was, um, yeah, that's media hype there. I mean, there's there's obviously cases in history. I mean, the tr- before the Trinity test, um, they had to quite seriously consider would a nuclear bomb actually just light the atmosphere up and cause an unstoppable train reaction that would just burn the atmosphere off. Like, there was genuine things like that where they're like, do we know physics good enough that this definitely won't happen? They were like, yeah, we're, we're pretty damn sure it won't happen. But it's, no, it's still something in the back of your head. You're like, gotta just, you know, just run yeah, that through, yeah. just do a few more, like, you know, sums on that one. Uh, just to be just to be completely sure that won't happen and things like this you know there are always again talking about unknown unknowns there are things that uh, we could end up developing as a technology that cause a catastrophe and we we don't know it um and the second criteria you said was environmental change like self-induced environmental change which is another very good one obviously you've got climate change um and the you know certain effects we may be having um on our own environment or even you know even more broadly we could end up just consuming uh resources even just outside of the earth overly consuming and then just not being able to um uh, you know just over consume i mean it's, it's fairly simple you know that that can yeah. happen um and the other one you mentioned uh nuclear war so like self-destruction self-annihilation doesn't necessarily have to be nuclear war it could be like chemical war it could be anything but yeah nuclear war is probably the main uh one that you know is most prevalent in our culture um, and since the Cold War has been a major theme in sort of existential threats and things like this, um, and the clock ticking closer to midnight sort of thing. But I mean, imagine giving that kind of firepower to civilizations of the past, the hugely um, perversely religious societies, like, I don't know, bloody Mayans, or, you know, just even, even just like Christian society in like the 11th century. I was talking about this the other day. There's always some people that frameworks can't really accommodate for. Uh, there's always a there's always a village idiot, so to speak. And as uh, technology becomes uh, more impressive, it, it really does only take one idiot. And there, and uh, as population expands, there are many more village idiots and many more villages. And each individual becomes more empowered with technology as well. Yeah, we see like individuals can can commit even like far greater catastrophes than they could in the past simply because of our access to technology now um yeah scale that up to the extreme to the extreme and then yes you get uh you get like one chink in the armor can cause extreme uh extreme problems and so these these are the idea of like great filters in the future filters obviously because they're a thing that uh, may be coming up that we need to pass and the reason why this is like an answer to the fermi paradox is simply that the the where these aliens went yeah. is at some point they encountered one of these great filters that we are we don't know about yet and upon encountering it it wiped them out yeah mars used to be the green planet <laughs> until until uh fuck knows what i mean that's somebody yeah. pressed a button yeah and that's one of yeah and that's one of the most uh interesting ones because it's, it's also one of the things like imagine if we do go out to explore the cosmos and then we find all the evidence of civilizations that have disappeared or killed themselves or died would that you know that would be like oh shit is something well, gonna happen yeah us, but it would be sobering i think and hopefully we'd learn from it but but i think the problem is we wouldn't know what it would be it, again it's like an unknown i know it's like okay they probably did exactly what we did and there's no we don't know and if maybe there maybe there is no way we could know what happened to them i mean um, assuming that self-destructive nature on other alien life is I, I guess we can talk about that as well like that's 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 a problem like you're projecting an idea of cognition and and 
group behavior and all kinds of assumptions about like you know that they're going to have like factions that they're going to even want to develop weapons that they're going to want to use them against themselves that they even have internal conflict they might not even have a sense of conflict in terms of the self-annihilation one yes but in terms of like the other great filters we mentioned like um like, well, re- resources, like technology, yeah, yeah, technology, technology resources. Yeah, yeah. We, we may find that they invent, they they got to a point where there was a certain technology that is coming up on our horizon, which which will kill us, but we will have absolutely no indication that it's coming along, uh, whatever that may be. Um, and so, you know, that would would be very sobering, but it would also be very frightening if that if you know that was because we're talking millions of years in the future anyway. So, yeah, hopefully, you know, we'll um, get through that. But yeah, so great, great filters, the spookiest. That's that's for sure. Um, so I'm going to break down a little bit of uh, the rare earth hypothesis. So just as a general idea, um, and essentially, it's it's in a way, it's kind of like a, a, a new formulation of the Drake equation. In a way, it's sort of like um, so. If I give you the terms that's in the sort of rare earth thing, it's like number of stars in the Milky Way, average number of planets in the, hab- in the star's habitable zone fraction of stars in the galactic habitable zone, and then fraction of stars in the Milky Way with planets. Then we also have on top of that, we have um, planets that are rocky or metallic, so to speak, habitable planets where micro microbial life arises, um, the fraction of that planet where complex life evolves, and the fraction of the total lifespan of the planet during which complex life is present. So there has to be a certain amount of time that that is able to stay there to evolve enough to get to intelligence. Um, and then also this one, uh, which I really don't like, and I think uh, has attracted a lot of controversy, understandable, is the fraction of habitable planets with a large moon. Um, that one being criteria is very much up for debate. That's why I'm prefacing it right now, because I, yeah, I, I don't really like... I, that one is very, like, out there in terms of, like, do we... Is, is like, there are factors, for, for example, like, uh, you know, uh, lunar tides... Yeah, things like this, which are obviously, and also the way in which our moon uh, affects the axial tilt of the Earth, because uh, there was essentially an event during uh, the early Hadean where what uh, proposed uh, the idea of how the moon formed was that this uh, another planetary body called Thea um, slammed into the Earth at the time and ejected a lot of the mass, and then that what, that's what formed the moon. That's also what pushes on this axial tilt, which is why we have things like uh, seasons that are not too. Um, you know, there's not too much variation in our seasons, but it's also, there's enough variation that things like photosynthesis, um, it, it can be nice and we can get a little bit of temperature variation. Yeah, so this this idea of the, the, uh, the moon's formation and the effects that it had on the earth and the, and the, um, the tides and things like this uh, were some very important, I'm sure it was a very important part of, of how life or complex life evolved on this planet. I'm sure it definitely had an effect. It, as terms of a requirement, uh, that one's really getting out there in terms of like, okay, a large moon being a necessity, you know, I can see why that one gets a lot of uh, controversy. Um and then there's also the fraction of planetary systems with large jovial planets. Um, uh, and essentially, this is one of those interesting ones where uh, we can start talk about a little bit like uh, how our solar system is arranged, which is an interesting one because our, the way our solar system is arranged is relatively unusual um, in the sense that we have these massive gas giants that haven't gravitated closer to the star or, and are fairly stable and haven't basically completely you know, ruined uh, the Earth yet or flung a load of rocks at us. Um, in, in fact, the, the way the arrangement happens, and luckily that it is stable as it is, means that potentially that um, you know a lot of these uh, jovial bodies like Saturn and uh, particularly Jupiter, important in actually protecting the Earth from a large amount of potential collision events and capturing asteroids and in, in, um, you know, things like that. Well, you know why that is, don't you? Why the universe is arranged that way? 
Why is it color? Uh, it's, it's because it's um, a gift from God. It's God's grace so that <laughs> yeah. we can survive because we're the center of the universe. Yes. This has been a vehicle for Christianity the whole time. Uh, convert to evangelical Christianity. Yeah. There's the advertisement. Yeah, so th- that there's all those sorts of factors that sort of factor into this idea of the rare earth hypothesis. Of course, the criticism this uh, particular answer to the paradox sort of attracts in, in rare earth being so rare that, that you know you don't get this intelligent life it's a bit anthropocentric um it's kind it's just kind of describing how life evolved on earth and then going well that's how all life uh, has to evolve which is understandable you know that's a, yeah. fairly well it is like you know as much as i'm you know ribbing a bit it, it is like fucking mental you know the the, the conditions are absolutely just right and we we aren't seeing that to the extent yeah although to the extent at which we adapted into particular conditions and the extent to which all possible forms of life could have a slightly different idea of what their ideal conditions are of course you know that's again another key part of the debate is how much is are our conditions something that we've heavily adapted to and how much are these conditions the necessary ones to what are the what are the parameters as far how far can you go before you can't get complex life anymore and how far have we um gone in terms of like this is just exactly you know we had to have these exact conditions um in order for intelligent life to, to evolve um and so yeah rare earth kind of goes goes through the root of like look at all these things um these are all factors that uh, basically make our situation very unique if this is the way that life has to evolve then these very unique set of things that have to have to happen and because all these things have to happen it's very rare and thus that's why you don't see loads of alien life um another another one that's kind of a bit ropey is things like uh, magnetic field and plate tectonics surely consciousness Um, comes into this as well we're the only animal that's conscious well, that, that depends on your how you define conscious. I don't think we're the only animal that's conscious. Oh. And I think it depends on how you define consciousness, but that's a whole consciousness podcast. Yeah, I, I don't um, definitely do not want to get into that one. But which, yeah. which animal is it? Is it squirrel? I think most uh, animals are conscious. And I think that's to do with confusion between the uh, the definition of self-awareness and consciousness. But that's, again, that's the whole other podcast. But, okay, so, so we're the only animal that's self-aware, um, you would say? There's, there's a limited number of animals that are self-aware, but if, you're called, if, you're, if consciousness for you is self-awareness... Sure. If consciousness is slightly yeah, yeah. more in, slightly more nuanced than that, which I'm in that and sort of Thomas Nagel camp, then yeah, okay, it's more. Um, there's a little bit more going on the, okay, uh, yeah, to, yeah. to the idea of what consciousness yeah. actually is. Um, so yeah, I, I don't particularly think uh, consciousness actually factors into these things. Um, but, but yeah, but but uh, self awareness is surely an ingredient to. You know, we're talking about uh, spacefaring and, and uh, communicative species, so. Um, hmm. the question is is, is that is that that's another whole hurdle in itself you, you've got life and then you've got intelligent life and- right i mean so it, yeah i guess it depends on what camp you're in i mean yeah i'm in i would say most people who are uh you know like realist naturalist whatever um myself included are sort of more in the consciousness is emergent camp which mm-hmm. you know can entail that um more likely than not, it's just a, it's just a sufficient barrier of complexity and intelligence that uh, through which consciousness arises, um, depending on exactly how you're defining consciousness. So it's like, sure, yes, but I, th- I think kind of innately built into it, at least for most people, depending on how you define consciousness, is that a sufficient level of complexity, in essence, alien advanced life and advanced civilization, if they're intelligent and sophisticated enough, thus... Uh, it's it's like it's it follows that consciousness would have emerged um given that assumption that consciousness is emergent given a, a, a set amount of complexity um, right. required yeah. mm. um so 
yeah i mean that's yeah that's that's all sort of so for me it's kind of like it's it's a redundant i mean it's a redundant question asking if a totally different form of life for me if you're if you're in the emergence camp you're sort of like okay well it's sufficiently intelligent and complex enough thus there is no reason to assume that it isn't conscious in some sense it is the same uh because it, there's a complexity requirement yes, uh, for, yeah. from which it emerges um so yeah, yeah. So there's that's that rare, earth, rare earth, whatever. Um, so we talked about great fields. We talked about rare earth. We've t- there's another one which um, is an in- a little one that we'll just. Like, I think we basically covered. It's just that we're too primitive to actually send out messages that are detectable. And essentially, that's to, just to do with the fact that radio waves, which have been blasting into space again for like two hundred odd years, um, maybe they just they just don't have. They don't even bother like looking for them, or you know, don't have any interest in it because it's such a primitive technology that it's just like that's. It doesn't even like register for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, or, it's or it's just pure, it's just like it's not even they're not even capable of listening to it. It's not even it's not even something they would register as anything. It's just, it's just something to them, totally alien as it as right. their forms of communication would be to us. Right. Um, there's there's actually one I've got um, the, to do with the limits of technology. However, I, I mean you you'll know the exact years. How long were we just hunter gatherers for? Oh, hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, literally um, the the, yeah. the vast majority of our existence was so stagnant we literally just sat in caves chatted bollocks and ate mammoth that's literally all we did for, for so long and it, you know it, it it took us so long just to, to get wheels and to get just like basic things working and then i think we assumed that because uh the curve after that was so exponential um well even then it, there was hmm. dips and things yeah but that was the last uh hundred years certainly right. post enlightenment has been pretty exponential yeah. yeah um we just kind of assume okay well it's going to keep going up flying cars it's that whole 80s linear, thing positive, yeah yeah positivistic sort of progression yeah, yeah. and it's like well it, it might not be linear it might we might literally just be at the peak now then you know we might see through toasters and um like a weird bloody orb alexa things that talk to you and that's it and that's that's basically as far as we can get we don't really know how far we can push technology we don't know if uh, like like you were saying ftl is possible faster than light travel uh, or you know any anything we don't know if uh, our our space faring attempts seem to have gone relatively okay but we've only really done a few we don't really know uh you know I, i'm I'd like to think we can yeah. get to Mars very easily and do that, but see, you know, see when it comes. Right. I mean, I'm very positive about uh, things like uh, the current situation with space flight, uh, particularly with stuff like what SpaceX is doing now, and you know, things like Starship are just bonkers. Like they're just incredible machines. Um, and so, yes, I guess solar system. Yeah, the 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 notion of interstellar travel, though. Yeah, as as one of the things that was on this on this list is like, do we really know the extent to which? Uh, the technology uh, is is possible. And I, th- I think there's definitely, we know enough about the laws of physics, and yes, there are gaps in our knowledge. Um, um, and we don't have a complete picture for what how reality works, but um, certainly we have enough to know that there is a, there are hypothetical things that uh, are certainly within the realms of possibility. And I think you can project that quite far uh, with technology from where we currently are. Um, there are obviously things like indicators like Moore's law, but a, a lot of people would argue, I've, I've seen people argue um, f- fairly convincingly that Moore's law, not only is it more of a heuristic, but in many ways it hasn't been slowing down as a lot of people sort of think, because it depends on how you define the sort of um, ongoing process of computation. And things like GPUs have kind of... Yeah, I think a lot different. of people just, they, they base that on aesthetic. It's like, oh, it's, 
aesthetics. It's like, okay, well, it doesn't look like it's advancing. Cause, cause... Well, there's, there's certainly an argument um, to be made that computing hasn't really hit a paradigm shift. I mean, the last 10, 15 years have been it's been more about data and and like um, and, and furthering our sort of understanding of how networks and things like this work and also making technology smaller and faster and more compact. Whereas the, the fundamental architecture, to a certain extent, and I will, we'll get into sort of exceptions to this, has not really changed. There's been many aspects to it which have simply um, been more optimized rather than necessarily gone through a paradigm shift. Mm. Well, I will say things like quantum computing that are already very much in development and already things on the horizon that um, uh, can be a whole sort of new system that unlocks different ways of, um, of comp- computational possibilities. Um, those sorts of technologies, like, are, are certainly like we've got a future projecting these sorts of things in the future. We've got we've got hypothetical things like uh, you know thorium reactors, and we've got um, you know even potentially um, fusion reactors, things like this. Like you know, maybe maybe we'll get to this stage in the future and we'll be like, okay, we know that many of these things are impossible, but there's so many things that we have left to explore in terms of practical technologies that could have a massive impact um, on humanity that. I think certainly for now, we're, we're far from limited in our directions in which we can go and how that will impact our ability to um, uh, ability to do interstellar travel, essentially. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the technology sort of being stymied at some point or sort of running out of a uh, thing as, as another possibility. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, we don't... Of course, it would be arrogant to assume that there is an entirely sort of going to be an entirely linear uh, uh, exponential uh, increase in our sort of rate of technology technological development. Mm. Um, but even if the rate uh, the the rate is is not necessarily exponential, perhaps if it is this uh, a more linear graph, then even then there is going to be over enough time still enough technological development to unlock certain uh, capacity for interstellar travel and things like this um even though like I, you said like I, yeah. I i think given our the best understanding we have of physics it it's looking pretty convincing that ftl is just not a thing and it's not going to happen and uh talking about answers to the fermi paradox i mean yeah we'll, we'll get more into this in a minute but one of my uh actually let's just blend them together but like one, one of my major opinions is what the fermi paradox tells us at least about um aliens in terms of the observable universe is certainly that ftl isn't possible because sure if we're expanding the search to our local group or or places which are reasonable uh to be able to communicate with or visit within uh the permit of the speed of light okay maybe life is rare enough or special enough that we can uh bring the equation down to uh, separate events of intelligent life uh, are not actually as likely as we think to, uh, to be become contacted with but there's certainly one thing that does seem to be pretty uh, interesting which is that if um if it was possible to develop ftl that technology was possible for intelligent life to develop given the scale of the observable universe at very least um surely somewhere in there because it's so we're talking such a scale that's so so much more vast that surely you know i I do firmly believe there's intelligent life outside of um uh, our, our past light cone but if ftl was possible then it would be difficult to justify the fermi paradox because then if they could travel faster than light why have they not in the whole observable universe uh, why is there no evidence for them so as as i was saying with the example of us being hunter gatherers for 90 percent of our existence is it not possible that they just they're just content to stay in caves and that they haven't bothered building spaceships because our uh, uh, kind of 
desire to and, and curiosity is unique to us. Like, other races aren't cu- curious in that sense. They literally have no fucking interest in doing that. They just stay on their planet. Their planet dies, and they just they might build like you know kind of tribal stuff. They they just don't bother getting into spaceships because it's I don't know. It's hmm. it this yeah, yeah. So what you're sort of blending here is is one a sort of evolutionary thing. There's also this idea of like that goes into the sort of loss of motivation category. Yeah, yeah. Um. And so one is one. I guess you're unpacking there is like this idea that evolutionarily you may bottleneck into a place where. I mean that's that's a difficult one for me because is that I, is I that evo- is that evolution or is that um, well, is it cultural evolution? Yeah, there's one point to this way we can start to talk about more like maybe we can. Th- imagine beings that evolve in such a way that are, that have more of a technological equilibrium perhaps that's a difficult one to figure out that where there would be no evolutionary pressure to develop more um more intelligence or become sufficiently intelligent that there would be like an arms race of intelligence which would eventually end up with them inevitably developing higher technology yeah that's one thing but the, i think the main thing you're talking about here is the loss in the loss of motivation uh, domain which is just the idea that simply are they as biotic organisms simply, no matter how intelligent they are, simply not interested in uh, in in that kind of? I mean, and one is a psychological well, argument, which yeah. is uh, well, one one I think has to do with uh, it, it was collective desire as well. Uh, um, obviously, to to actually, it's it's a great feat. Like, I mean, why did we go to the moon? Why did we bother? I think it was political, and you know, to to transpose that onto another species suggests that possibly they have the same political uh, analogs, you know, the, the same sort of, because it was, it was Cold War, wasn't it, right? It's like the space race. Because I think the main reason... It was the main reason why it happened then. Yes. I, I would yeah. struggle to justify it not happening yeah. ever. And I think one of the, I think one of the main things uh, to tease apart here is, is the idea of whether a lot of these aspects that we talk about, like curiosity, determination, this this idea of ceaseless sort of progression or need to discover new things or figure out things, is that an actual inbuilt Darwinian property of humans? Is that like something where if you have evolutionary pressure for, for advanced life to to um, come, out of, uh, come out of the ether, surely one of the things that would be a sort of prerequisite of that is there would be evolutionary pressure for there would be a selection process by which individuals who are more motivated or curious or more like those populations with people who were in it who were more curious who who like decided to explore more would have an evolutionary advantage and thus be selected for more so is there it built into there we'd have to justify an argument in which there would be no selective pressure for certain qualities such as like curiosity or even competitiveness or this or this this need to go sort of further or develop or develop more and if if we can figure out a way in which they would we could get rid of any selective pressure for those types of individuals um sure maybe we can make that argument for me it's like it seems far more likely that as a prerequisite of human evolution it makes sense that there is just automatically selective pressure for individuals who um you know even if it's not necessarily every individual it's like you just as a population um human beings want to have this spread of personalities in which the types of people who want to innovate are part of that population in order for that particular population to gain a genetic foothold or advantage um so yeah i I don't necessarily think that these traits uh are necessarily like anthropocentric in the sense that i I, d- I think given a Darwinian mechanism, you can think of a way in which uh, this this transcends just being human uh, and actually sort of is more of a deep, like, 
evolutionary thing where it's like it makes sense for that to be a selected property regardless of how intelligence evolves right um so that, that's how I'd, I'd roughly sort of tackle that i mean continuing in that loss of motivation category that you brought up um i think certainly with like later stage civilizations um the three different uh, ones i've sort of gotten written here um is one is hedonism actually which hasn't really come up uh as far as solutions to the fermi paradox and doesn't really right, hasn't yeah. really registered but one of the sort of crossed my mind as an idea to put out there is the idea that a civilization can get to a stage where the only ultimate goals are sort of satisfied through total hedonism and thus things like exploration contact desire to get more resources is not necessarily there's no motivation there's no reason in uh, to keep expanding keep doing that sort of thing if um, a civilization gets to a stage where hedonism sort of takes over um, and all the individuals simply are motivated by pursuing uh, pleasure in some sense one idea of this could be that uh, things called like uh, mari- uh, matryoshka brains and things like this which are basically where a civilization maybe gets to a stage where they upload their consciousnesses and simply just they just like you know chill around a scar technology takes care of them so kind of like yeah transhumanist <clears throat> ideas right yeah. and they just it's a civilization that just ends up okay we've hit we've hit the limit now all we want to do is live eternal lives in yeah. these simulations Plug in with pleasure virtual interface great yeah. what you know in that scenario you there if if they can essentially live virtually eternal lives then as far as they're concerned uh, exploration is pointless and contacting other life and all those sort of factors uh those corporeal factors of the world become irrelevant um uh another another one could just simply be that once a civilized maybe a civilization can get to a stage where survival just isn't a problem like survival isn't a concern for the particular civilization anymore they can get to such a secure state um that it's just why would we expand anymore why would we go explore more why would we go when we've you know we've got to a stage where we're totally secure we've got everything we need we've got the resources we need we've got the stuff we need it's, mm. it's very very related to the hedonism argument i guess in a way but perhaps you don't even need the hedonism element you just need the well is there a rational reason for this particular civilization to expand beyond a point if you know if they get to a certain stage where they don't need to um you know that's a simple fairly another very simple sort of loss of motivation (coughs) answer to the fermi paradox Excellent. So we've gone through almost all the ones I've sort of got on the list. We'll see if, see if you've got any ones I've missed. But um, I suppose the next one, just to quickly, briefly explore, uh, briefly mention again, was just simply the simple uh, simulation hypothesis of what's called like a hy- uh, planetarium hypothesis, uh, which is essentially well the reason why there's no aliens is because this is a simulation and we're the simulation is built in such a way that there's no other aliens it's just we're or we're an experiment like the earth is just this great big simulated experiment to run through uh human See, beings I, that things. doesn't even make sense to me because it's like well it, there's so much fine-tuning and, and and sort of um attention to detail for a simulation it, I mean, the fine-tuning would be an argument for the simulation, if anything. Um, whereas, I yeah. mean, the attention to detail, I guess, yeah, you could argue, but, I mean, but if, sufficiently if, if, complex simulations, the whole point would yeah. be that it would be, it would be complicated or more complicated than our own minds uh, to a certain extent. Um, so, you know, it, it's, well, again, it's, it's simulation hypothesis. You can't, you know... It, totally, if, you, if you're making a simulation, you, you, would, you would want it to obey the laws of physics and, and to, to make sense. 
Well, well maybe, the whole, maybe the point in the simulation we're in is that they've done things that aren't actually on the level above. There's some parameters, constants in the universe they've tweaked and to see what would happen, or they've set certain things up in a certain <laughs> way. Who, I mean, you know, the speculation as yeah, to yeah, hyper, okay. is infinite as far as simulation. There's point, you know, there's obviously there's that's a whole different sort of epistemic category almost as far as the Fermi paradox is concerned. It's just sort of answering it with going, well, reality's not real, so you know, we anything, yeah, yeah, all yeah. bets are off. I mean, but it's you know, obviously it's saying that i'm not saying that the people who believe simulation hypothesis are completely stupid i'm, I'm just saying like you know obviously it's it's one of the real variations yeah, of this kind of brain in the there are idea. um sort of epistemic um qualifications that need to be addressed before you go down that route yeah it kind mm. of in invites other questions right and we'll uh, do a brain yeah. of that sort of episode and uh simulation yeah. so and, and got, then possi possibly like... possibly political questions with that as well like yeah there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot going on there yeah, I mean, we've already got like three different podcasts we need to do now. <laughs> but um, yeah, so let's let's dig into the the uh, this, this uh, probably second fun second funnest one, which is the sneaky aliens one, which has got loads of different ones in it. So sneaky aliens, we've got we simply haven't been looking uh, long enough to detect signs of intelligent alien life. That's a boring one out of the first one. Let's just get the boring one out of the way. It's just simply that. We just like just we need a we need a few more hundred years. We need we just like maybe we're on the cusp of discovering a signal from well, alien you, life, but we just haven't quite got there yet. Like I said, it's been like what like fifty years of like actual looking, and hmm. you know, with, with yeah. and, and our, our instruments are getting more and more refined. We keep thinking it's that uh, that whole that limits technology thing. I think I brought up. It's like that can go either way. We we could be on the the limit now. We could we could be. You know, in the far future, we could have such things we can't even imagine. Ways of of, of studying the solar system. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean that's a, that's one where it's like maybe you could field that argument in in ad finitum. So it's it's a difficult one to sort of. It's like you know the, the easy counter to that is okay, but when is the we haven't been looking long enough. At what point have we been looking long enough and we can make yeah, a conclusion, yeah. you know? Um, and obviously, you know, we have a certain degree of uh, a, a pretty amazing amount of technology at the moment, considering we're just like apes. But, you know, of course, in the grand scheme of things, like you said, we don't know how bounded that uh, that is. So maybe it is, maybe it is, we are literally just on, on not quite on the threshold where we are capable of detecting any life. Uh, the next one, uh, which is, it's a spooky one. This is a spooky one. Is is so um, a, a highly advanced civilization uh, would perhaps eliminate life once it gets to a sufficient amount of complexity. For that, it doesn't really care. But maybe maybe it's out there. But it's just you know, as soon as you get to a certain amount of complexity, they're like, nope, uh, you're a competitor now, or you're a threat, or whatever else, and just goes boop boop. You know, yeah, blows up the earth to make a giant galactic uh, bypass road, you know, like in Douglas Adams or something like that. You know, they just like turn up and they're like, no, nope, you're going to move, you know. Well, yeah, it's, it, it's this whole, uh, if, if they're, if they're godlike, if, if their levels of technology are so beyond their own, if they don't want to be noticed, they won't be. And also they might just comprehend us as in the same way, you know, you, you want to build a road through a, forest and you, you know you see a nice hedgehog or bird or whatever and you're like that's kind of nice but I've, I've got at the end of the day i've got to do this so it's not yeah. it's not necessarily malevolence could they could just dist like destroy us or, or ignore us from mm. point of view of well, there's no point 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a perfect encapsulation of the next one, which is the zoo hypothesis, mm. essentially, which is part of the zoo hypothesis, which is just like, we're being left alone because we're basically like zoo animals. We're so unsophisticated. Um, you know, we could either be, there's there's variations of it where we're an ongoing experiment where we're just like a zoo thing that they're just watching, going, oh, cool, look at that happening. Um, or like like you said, they just, they're just on such a different plane that why would they even bother interacting with us? It would be like us, like I said, talking to a squirrel, like what what's the point? Um um, you know, I've got sort of on there, like a, a sort of, if you've, anyone's watched Star Trek, a sort of prime directive thing in a way, maybe. Maybe there's like, a, they're so advanced, but they for some reason, there's maybe some uh, ethical justification for why they don't interact with uh, life there's, or, or deliberately hide from, I don't know, maybe there's some ethical reason that they're, for, for our sakes, that they're deliberately not. That would be nice. Uh, avoid it. Yeah, that would be a nice one. It's like a prime directive y sort of thing, but obviously it's difficult to necessarily come up with a rational reason why uh, that would be the case. Uh, although I'm sure people have and probably will. The next one is another spooky one, which is simply that alien life, uh, or for aliens, for an advanced civilization, it's not advisable to communicate with anyone. And in fact, everyone listens, but nobody's broadcasting. And perhaps there is something kind of, you know, slightly ominous in there in the sense that maybe we're just one of the naive aliens that's like not, it was a bit sort of laissez-faire with our broadcasting. And in reality, there's there's very rational reasons the, why you shouldn't the, be letting yourself known. In the Warhammer universe, we're the Tau. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're the fucking idiots. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh um, so yeah, that's that's another sort of spooky one. Was, is there a reason why uh, you know perhaps they are out there, but they're just you know for for a good reason they're not commun- they're not communicating because of because of the, the dangers of doing so. Um, uh, pretty much, I mean, sort of similar to what you sort of mentioned uh, in in two in two different points. The the fact that they we may just have no reference for them at all because it may be such so different physiologically. Uh, that their whole perception that like they don't perceive, uh, they don't measure or perceive. Certain don't we? Things don't we, we do. share like a lot of our DNA with bananas? Yeah, like it's eighty percent. Like, yeah, it's a, yeah, sort of. Yeah, and it, and 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 mice and things. It's, yeah, so it's right. like imagine something doesn't share our DNA at all, mm, and a totally different evolutionary yeah, path. You, you yeah. just, you just, yeah, it, they communicate by. I mean, I really like Arrival. I think I think Arrival's fucking yeah, I, amazing. I really film. like that yeah, film. Yeah, just they don't even think linearly. They don't even think like chronologically x to yeah. y. They think like atemporally. That's like that's that's perfect. And they don't they don't even use like they use symbols to communicate. And even then, that's like for our benefit as well. And and they're not even they don't even have heads. They're just like they're just like giant feet. Yeah, what they called like tetrapods or something like something. Pods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cephalopods. I can't remember. It's, it's like a certain number of limbs, but yeah, no, those designs are brilliant because, like you said, they're so otherworldly, even down to the fundamental way in which they think and see the universe. Where it's like, you know, so, on such a fundamental sense, they're like four-dimensional beings. They like time for them is a very different thing uh, to mm. how time is for like something so fundamental to our perception of of existing uh, is a, is a totally different thing to them. And it's it's a really cool sci-fi idea to have that level of uh, difference in yeah, uh, physiology. Uh, it's it's kind of like that uh, uh, Victorian thing. Of, uh, if a lion could talk, we wouldn't even be able to understand it. So even if a lion could uh, probably do this on uh, an actual podcast at some point. Um, uh, but just very briefly here, like if a lion could speak perfect English, we still wouldn't be able to understand anything it says because its reference points would be so far removed. I mean, you think of how a Buddhist monk from the ninth century would have uh, thought. So absolutely completely different to to how we would think you, you take that like times 20 
yeah, to a certain extent, I, I perhaps have a slightly different opinion on that. Um, I think partly part of that does come to, I mean, similar to the points you were making earlier about like genetic relatedness and things like this. Like, there's there's so much sort of programming in us that seems to be, you know, on this sort of archetypal level of like so fundamentally built into us and so still part of the natural world that sort of like hangovers in the way we behave that are completely irrational in the in the modern very human world. But there's so many things that really connect to us on a primal level. Um, you know, not to mention things as things as weird as like music being like pleasurable to like something like that is so like kind of abstract in the in the way in which we react to it um and yet it feels so important and fundamental to us I, I think that relationship with uh the natural world is not something that would necessarily be um because of uh, the shared is experience it, of it, natural it, creatures. is this um is this in reference to talking to a lion or talking to a buddhist monk talking to a Buddhist monk or a lion or a or a grapefruit. I mean, grapefruit. Obviously, that's we talk. We're getting to we're getting into like levels where it's like the, without even a neurology. It's of course that reference point. You know, you you have to start really getting down to the weeds of like what do you even mean when you say communicate because that's that's getting that's pushing. You know, that's pushing some definitions. But I would say when it comes to like the animal kingdom, there are like when to say that there isn't a reference point in any sense would be also in a way to say that be a sort of anti-realist position in the sense that there would be no shared elements uh, to the collective experience of different creatures sharing a natural environment and of course humans are on a very different plane like, i totally get that yes. but to say that there aren't archetypal experiences that are shared by uh, a lie in the sense of um you know running away from danger or hunting for food or being hungry um all these sorts of things that like run so deep in us um in spite of all our you know in incredible development in our cortex and things like this like we're still fundamentally uh, yeah we have this uh, endocrine system we have a, we have a we have fear we have irrational uh behaviors um, i, th I think holders. the context for, for those things are slightly different with, with oh the humans. context is different but i, I think yeah. that's that's what i'm talking about is on on this like deep archetypal level i think sure yeah i, I, I think i, I think like, i agree speaking english maybe not but it's like i think communicating if if there is such a thing as being able to communicate the same language as something uh far less sophisticated it's just that the language would be on a very different level almost emotional level or an almost uh like a primal level to not start to sound too spiritual or anything but no yeah um, yeah yeah you, right. so, yeah that, that's sort of so that's my sort of counter argument to that it's like this idea that we would we wouldn't understand anything it's like well it depends on See, what you mean by speak english depends on what you mean yeah, by communicate. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, um, mentioning a temporality again, yeah, I, I think obviously one of the major differences between our cognition and uh, animal cognition is is the absence of, of temporality. They, they, I think a lot of animals just live atemporally. They don't have any concept of time. Um, that <laughs> well, there's there's no um, there's a very very limited ability to abstract things into the future is the, is the point yeah. there like a human beings essentially discovered the future by through realizing that we could plan for things realizing that if I plant a seed now my future this will have an effect on yeah uh, like, things like that which, which obviously to us now are so simple but yes like you said yeah like um, most there's no real concept of like memory it's it, a lot of like what we think is memory with dogs is actually just very pavlovian and like it, it it's not again it's not just because they're doing it doesn't mean they necessarily understand why a lot of like a lot of it is instinct a lot of it is is just completely subconscious uh, i mean we don't we don't really know but from what we can ascertain there's i think um i've watched a few lectures uh when i was at university uh from some of the leading sort of uh, people doing not just animal psychology but the philosophy of mind in general and sort of transposing that to 
uh, it's sort of animal thought, and it's just it, there's no real sense of of uh, I think we're kind of what we're saying self awareness in the animal kingdom. Um, it made me laugh. Um, my mate said deers have democracy. It's like, well, yeah, that's a bit far. Yeah, it's like, because because I know, it, it's this sort of um, David Attenborough esque thing where it's just like the deer t- takes a vote. It's like it's not. Well, it's not really because it, I know I know the sort of the deer looks to all the other deer in the herd and there's hierarchical programming. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, that's exactly it. Programming. It, there's no choice involved. They're not. They're not really thinking. Okay, so I'm. I'm going to do this and it's, it's, it's not, yeah, democracy is, is such a, it's like they don't have an understanding of that concept. Um, and again, it's just removing like past and future from that, just, I think makes it a completely different thing in essence. And it, yeah, it, it, it's totally alien. Right. The idea of awareness of oneself as an independent entity in the world and that you are a, a, an entity along with other entities in the world is, is yeah, that fundamental idea um, is something that requires a, a certain, a quite a large degree of abstraction in order to actually grapple with, uh, like beyond that, like primal archetypal level. Um, I think for me, like uh, you know, um, like I said, it's, it's just like the only difference for me is like whether um, the idea of communicating below that level is possible. And I, I think still a large uh, proportion of what constitutes a human being is is beyond the cerebral cortex. It is is lower than that. It's in, it's embedded in our um, in, in, in our endocrine system in in the, the deeper, older parts of the brain, uh, which you know still have a large effect on how we're wired, how we behave, um, how we feel. And mm. um, I think those parts are many of those parts are largely shared with other mammals. Um, and for that reason, it, it depends on what you mean by communicate. Because I think in terms of shared experiences, there are some on that deep primal level. Um, in terms of yeah, complex abstraction, obviously we're that's the only example we know of that even remotely close to that level of ability to... Um, yeah, you know, it, I, I'm not even sure they could communicate about it, even if that was, uh, you know, pragmatically possible, because it's, it's, they just, they just do. And but we, we can still think about... To those, a certain extent, I, I, I do think we communicate with dogs. I do think we communicate with our pets to a certain extent. Like, you know when your dog is like in pain or whatever, what is it doing? Is, is, is it, no, you can mm, say, yeah. like... It depends on whether you would argue that is if I would argue that in many ways, uh, like your pet signaling to you in one way or another is a form of communication. Um, and I mean, that for me, would, if, if nothing else, is like one of the main forms of evidence, I would say, against the idea that it's impossible to communicate. It's like, well, no, because we can share signals that indicate a state of mind to one another, even dis- despite the massive differences in our neurology. Um, it is possible to for us to understand some aspect of the internal world uh, of a dog, like the idea I of think, its pain, whether, yeah. it's, you know, whether you believe it's, it's experiencing that or not. I guess, or, I guess we can understand, but they can't. Right. That's, that's the real point when we're talking about communication we, we can we can make a dog do things but i i don't think it you know I, i'm not really sure if that's it's certain i don't think it's reciprocal i think it's just us no, I, I think if what, what is the dog doing when it barks when there's somebody an intruder nearby what is it doing i mean you could say it's it's just oh intruder barking but it's like in a way that is a form of communication i mean 
the the notion of of communication the notion of being abstractly aware of the fact you're communicating are perhaps are, are two different things as far as i'm concerned like the, the notion yes uh, of okay being yeah, aware yeah. of the abstraction of communication and just communicating whether by incidents or not like songbirds like birds will you know create alarm calls and things which will signal other birds to fly away if there's danger that you know that's communication in in a broad sense you know the, the birds in the early morning they're all telling each other to piss off this is my territory that's a form of communication um of course it's a different question to ask uh, whether that form of commu- whether that is a, yeah, like you know, abstract awareness yeah, yeah, of yeah. the fact they're communicating with another separate entity of course that's a whole different question um yeah but that, that's you know that's, that's a really cool little tangent uh, mm, yeah uh, just like yeah the idea that aliens would just be so far removed like 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 talking to animals something that that is there still some I, notion of commonality in there um and I still like you know as as I've sort of made a slight case of I slightly lean towards the fact that if uh, life if we assume that there's like some Darwinistic mechanisms involved uh, with an advanced life then I think there would be at least some degree of common interface um, or some similar selective pressures uh, put onto uh, intelligence as it evolves that there would be some uh, degree of commonality in communication and failing that purely abstract aspects of maths and things like this you know even if the the way in which uh, uh, they do maths and things uh, the way in which they uh, count or even actually do things sure the structure might be different but fundamentally there has to be some a priori consistency to some systems and in that sense that can be a, a way to utilize you know co- your constants in the universe will be the same the definition of a constant is it is the same wherever you are so you can communicate through use of things like constants and use of things like our fundamental properties and logical relationships between uh, like these abstractions that mm. can be a common uh, place yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. So, so for me it's like i'm more optimistic that that there would be some ground but it's, it's understandable it's, it's, it's very it's very useful to entertain that that idea that maybe there is zero uh, common, is it possible that there is no possible uh, common ground or it's, it's such a completely uh, non sequitur from our own way of thinking yeah so we more or less covers all the only other the only last one on the sort of uh sneaky aliens list that i've got which is kind of kind of a, a little cool one is that aliens are in a state of um uh estivation which is essentially they're hibernating um and the the rationale here which kind of makes sense as a rationale is you collect loads and loads of resources and because you know that there's going to be a heat death of the universe, you save all those resources for when there's going to be no resources. So you, you hibernate. So you just conserve loads of energy so you can last longer into the heat death of the universe. So the idea simply is that, um, uh, yeah, they're, they're hibernating because they're like, well, okay, let's peace out and then we'll use this energy. We'll use the energy when we actually really need it in trillions of years when we're all, you know, the last things are just black holes. And well, I think trillions of years are still going to be stuff around, but um universal things be along yeah but entropy will take its course and there won't be very much useful energy that you can use in the uh, universe anymore there won't be uh and thus there's perhaps you could say that they would rationalize that okay well let's use it later um a cool little sneaky alien one uh why they're being a bit sneaky and then the final little answer to the paradox which is the most fun one is you know um they're with us already we already know of them. In well, we don't room. know of them, but yeah, in this room. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we laugh, you know, it's a, it's a possibility, but it's not one I necessarily subscribe to, but it is a fun one to entertain. What if, you know, they're already, uh, we just haven't noticed them yet, but they're already sort of, you know, 
among us. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's one of those things, isn't it? It's evidence. You have to you burn the proof. You know, you have yeah. to show evidence first for yeah. it, and it's like. Any well, things, things like the wow signal, uh, that was 1977, I think, which was a, a random little radio frequency burst that's still the most likely candidate for if there was a signal sent out by life. Things like this, and I mean, Carl Sagan going to his uh, going to his grave, I think, was already was like thinking that certain world events were actually aliens because he was so convinced by this uh, the Fermi paradox, like the fact that there was so much possibility for life in the universe that some things must, you know, that the aliens must be somewhere. Um, so, you know, there's there's plenty of, uh, you know, ways in which you can maybe stretch the definition of evidence here. But you can you can make an argument, well, we got the Fermi paradox, so, you know, it's a, it's a possibility. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, the main question I'm going to ask you is, out of these ones, what do you think is the most likely answer to the Fermi paradox? Mm. I think it has to do with uh, technology um, and the lack of it. I, I, I don't see any reason why any other intelligent species should want to leave their planet? Or, I don't know. So is it a technology or a motivational? Motivation. Like a limit on the upper bound, or is it or is it like they get to a certain stage and for whatever reason, why uh, the hell should we Well, actually, we I, I think they're both interconnected. I, and I think if you look at, you know, I, I find it baffling that countries like India have a space program because it's just like, it's, it's <laughs> poverty. Sort the poverty out. Don't yeah, bloody go to sense. the moon. It's no, you won't solve poverty by going to the moon. I, I do think there is there's obviously there's a bit of a rabbit hole, but I think I think there is like a cultural benefit. Um it's the same with like why do you, why is so much money pumped into sports while people are starving? Well, because it, it, it in a lot of cases it, it can get people out of poverty and it can, you know, it's like the whole there's sh- a financial realism. Like yeah. the economy isn't just like something where you put money into one place. It's, there's like Pareto distributions involved and also there's logistics, like to a certain extent. Um, and also money just collects at the top, you know, like again, the Pareto sort of distribution occurs and the way money moves around, uh, yeah. you, if you set up your system in a certain way, you inevitably get these sorts of uh, phenomenon coming out of it. And it's, it's, but I, I yeah. think, I think it, um, I think, I think it can inspire lots of people. So I, there, there is that. And, and it's like, you know, ed- education is a large part of it, but also at the same time, it's like, g- given that it's so difficult, at least for us. I mean, I'm, I'm abstracting a lot here um, based on our experiences. But like, given that it is so difficult to for us to say to get to Mars when there are other problems, um, it strikes me as probably more reasonable or that another species would be so divided and go, okay, no, fuck starving things, fuck uh, all sorts of internal problems. We want to go to Mars. Why? Because there's, there's these benefits to do with scientific research okay, know, so, I, so you're assuming so i just i want to make sure this is an assumption here so mm. your idea is that like uh built into that is the notion that they can't reach a stage where these problems are not solved so do you think that these problems uh, that we sort of see in our, in our you know in humanity right now do you think that those are things that cannot be overcome or will continue to project in some form or another into the future i think humanity is too diverse to have that unification and I think it, it it's always going to have to be grappled with. Like I said, there's always village idiots. But there's also just take the idiots out of the equation. There's there's so much diversity. It's um. It's hard to like police that plurality to have like dialogue, and and mm. I, it, there's like you know you think of like um, societal differences between 
people. And I, I think that those always require attention and resources that I don't think we'll ever have the surplus resources to to then take that and go, okay, well, we'll you know, we've got to do, just do Mars now. It's like, well, we're always having to direct resources at right. each other. But I, I would say that we we organize enough on a national level in all, I mean to to talk about Mars I mean that's what SpaceX is currently doing mm. as a private company pretty much pretty much on their own at the moment they're making real progress towards that program they're not you know they're not some like ma- like an entire planet they are a sort of collective of individuals within a pluralistic system um of, of yeah that, that's know, that's other companies yeah. that whole country nations you know races whatever you want to call it yeah I, I just I just don't see why another species would be as divided i know we are and that's why we do it and that's cool i think spacex is really cool but um i i don't necessarily see why another species would have like why it would fracture so much i don't think you really see that in other species in okay. earth well really? uh, mm, it depends on these like social insects like you know um things like these are obviously very examples on the very different end of the spectrum but you do see both uh i mean more antisocial behavior so like cats uh like uh, big like large cats are a good example of they're like like the least social animals they're, as far as mammals are concerned you know even within mammals they're just like don't don't like they just literally meet at like once or twice to yeah make babies i was, and I was, they I was literally thinking of cats as i said um, that i'm like yeah, yeah no, there's plenty of <laughs> species who are both more way more organized i, I think i think it's organized. i think it's when you add uh self-awareness into the equation i just i just seems, I don't know. I, I, again, you, you've only got one uh, control group to go from, hmm. you know, us. And- so you, th- you think that, right, so you think that they wouldn't have problems, but they wouldn't, like the aliens, the reason why they're not, uh, the reason why they're not expanding or whatever is for some other reason, some internal reason or not because I, of I, I, I don't think they would want to and I, I think given that it's so hard i think they would focus their attentions on other things because okay there's plenty of things that life could want and that's just one of them hmm. yeah sort of going into that yeah mo- loss of motivation thing yeah um do you what? think that humanity will go extinct before we become a multi-system species before we actually make it uh, make other colonies outside of the solar system no, I think we'll colonize Mars. Uh, uh, outside of the solar system. Um, yeah. No. No, I think we'll go extinct. Oof. Ah, yeah, you're pessimist in that camp. Yeah. Yeah. So you reckon, uh, what, what do you reckon, it, will it, of, of what nature do you think that we will? Take the pick. I don't know. Um, just not, any one of the above, natural, I think, I, like I said, I, yeah, I, I think it's, just, there'll be so much, I think, war. Right. I don't think we'll actually, Necessarily, like you said, extinction is slow. I think we will just have a prolonged war and never bother to go outside. I think as as we like conflict will take focus and we'll just never get around to it because it's such well, a my argument against that is big um, unified effort. To do yeah, that. but I mean, do you not think that the uh, the sort of it's not really hegemonic stability, but the the sort of game theoretic stalemate you get when you have uh, nation states that have nuclear weapons. Um, yeah, well, will, there is obviously evidence that we're becoming more peaceful. Right. Well, um, do you think that 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 will not hold into the future in the sense that this this equilibrium that we get that enables uh, this degree of peace, sort of on a you know maybe on a knife's edge, but uh, this this because of this game theory, do you think that that won't hold into the future and that that an actual proper war, like, you know, a self-annihilation will break out, essentially? I think memories are very short and um, 
don't know if it'll be very long before we either get uh, an attack in Arsenal. And I see. I wouldn't say it's those things that are uh, what's holding it back, though. It's 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 self-preservation in a sense that is the main <laughs> fundamental mechanism. I don't think yeah, they. Yes, I don't yeah, care, yeah. care about other nuclear examples in in what I think. Well, no, that's, that's what I mean. They, they don't. Thinking, they don't want... I don't want to blow myself up. Like mm. that is you know that's kind of the fundamental game theory that's going on, right? What do you think is? Uh... Well, what's your explanation for the Fermi paradox? Which one do you go with more? What's your favorite? Right. Well, okay. So we'll break down my opinion. My, my opinion is mostly that there is there's a large um, error bars on the conditions for which intelligent life arises. And I think that we underestimate the probability of life, uh, intelligent life, I should say, arising on um, Earth-like worlds. Um, one factor is because it's just difficult to say how unlikely abiogenesis is. Um, but in part for me, because if you look at how uh, how long it took for multicellular life to appear on Earth, I, I think while life itself did appear fairly early on, it would make sense to me that there may well be many Earth-like worlds that get to a prokaryotic stage or a... Um, you know, some primitive state of life, but not necessarily go through the randomness or, uh, you know, required events that spur another level of evolution that allows it to um, c cause that chain reaction. I mean, prokaryotes are still one of, the, you know, the most successful living things. And so the idea that it's necessarily always going to be the case that every world will, within a reasonable amount of time, hit that eukaryote or multicellular life stage is, is not necessarily assumed. So that's, a, that's part of why I, I think the reason is. Another one, there's certain factors, like I've mentioned, the, the configuration of the solar system. I think certain things like this are maybe more important than we realized. Um, and also that intelligence itself may be more random and maybe more weird, given the lack of convergent evolution examples in anything like a human brain. And yes, there are brains. Yes, there is intelligence. But the scale at which humans have undergone adaptions in order to tech straight into brains is pretty unprecedented and has only showed up in, in the last 200,000 years, which is a blip in the memory of, of life itself over billions of years. Mm. Um, and so for me, that certainly strengthens the idea of, of this equation. And I should also mention, um, the, I, I mentioned the FTL thing. I think that if anything, the Fermi paradox is not a paradox for, for, our, um, for our galaxy and for these factors that I think there are many factors that just make it really, really difficult, including travel. Uh, space travel I, uh, is just takes fucking ages like it's ridiculous how difficult it is to get around um you even if you're traveling uh you know at some fraction of the speed of like, some reasonable fraction of the speed of light we're talking uh just vast hundreds of thousands of light years to get any uh, to get to uh, some other galaxy so um all those factors sort of played in for me uh helped answer the the question of why life hasn't evolved i think it's it's unlikely in our galaxy which um means and and if uh, intelligent life i should say because perhaps i'm i wouldn't be surprised if if uh like if single-celled life is discovered some some if the single self life has arose multiple times on different planets um and given mass extinctions as well that perhaps um there has been many examples of of simple life that has evolved and just not had the time has just the planet for whatever reason underwent an, an irrevocable natural disaster that wiped out that particular life um 
and and so those those particular things are sort of like for me the most uh, uh the most sensible uh, for me the, the least assumption sort of goes go into those and judging based on all these different factors mm. uh for me it's kind of um those sorts of things and i think i i think going off to more of the other ones i think it could potentially uh, be a little bit of great filters if there was a second one i would uh put you know, maybe it would be in the camp of a you know a very very small chance that that is that would be the case that there is something that we is on our horizon we can't there's an unknown unknown as far as technology is concerned um and then maybe at, at a very very like like really out there that um you know we're too uh we're too primitive or something something like that uh but Almost definitely, it's, it's to me, it's the probabilities of uh, of intelligent life of, um, coming about due to the factors of things like multicellular life being, uh, we don't know how random that is. Um, pl- pressures on evolution to actually cause something like a human being to happen, which, again, we're the only example of, of that particular extent to which evolution uh, takes into intelligence. Um, and also, I think the third thing that it tells us, uh, like I was about to say, is that in the, I, I almost certainly think there is intelligent life in the observable universe because there's, though, when you get to that scale, it's inconceivable that there isn't. It, despite however unlikely life is, it just in in the scale of that uh, of, of that ridiculousness, um, it'd be crazy to say that. But I think that it does perhaps say something about us understanding that uh, FDL as far as our laws of physics are concerned, is not possible. And I think, if anything, maybe it is evidence that faster than light travel is even more evidence, actually, to the case that faster than light travel is not possible for the fact that if it's so likely that somewhere in the observable universe there is alien life, then and they haven't contact, haven't got to us through a, through some FTL uh, mechanism or there hasn't been any evidence sent to us through FTL, then maybe that's a case that FTL uh, is impossible. And I think that that's... I don't think that's an unreasonable assumption to make that um, mm, we've yeah. we 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 are at the limit as far as far as far as uh, the the speed of the universe the speed of causality is concerned. Um yeah, th- those those are essentially kind of my main uh, takes on the Fermi paradox and I would say there is like some there are some weird factors that I sort of think go into it uh we may make an entire podcast to, to name drop a fourth one on the anthropic principle but um there's certainly an element of survivor bias in the sense that there's a to a certain extent because we're the only example um it is extremely difficult to make really any kind of assumptions about this and i think you know that's one of the major takeaways that most people sort of in these fields perhaps have about the fermi paradox is that if you think about it too much you're doing too much thinking because you're extrapolating too far into error bars and things that cannot be really quantified probabilistically which is you know sensible to make not that discussion to this extent can't be productive or uh, or frankly really interesting um mm. so yeah I, I those are sort of my uh, main takes i guess um i mean also you know i sort of briefly mentioned mass extinctions well, again we'll do a podcast on those i think because those those are really interesting and i think the more you look into mass extinctions i think for me that's another probably slightly lower on the list than the other ones but that's a bullet that i think we have dodged to a greater extent than perhaps we realized in terms of uh, the implications of these natural um, extinction events that occur relatively periodic even though even over huge time spans but um relatively frequently that you get these massive extinctions um mm. so yeah that's sort of my take on the on the fermi paradox um nice yeah 
You you good? Yeah, we, I mean, we can end it there. Just going to say that. Um, I think it's it, it fascinates me uh, more so that it it encapsulates the imagination so much that 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 people, um, you know, aside from the details, people are obsessed with this question. Um, I guess one thing we really didn't touch on was uh, the social and cultural implication of it, if this was ever solved, if we right. ever saw aliens, or if, or if we get to a stage where we've seen so much of the galaxy and maybe even our local group and there's nothing and we're the only ones in mm. it do you, do you think there could be like a paradigm shift coming from that do you think it would it would massively change human my my hope was my hope would be that we would treat uh our existence and life and that and we would as, as a way at a level of importance that's you know extremely profound because if we found nothing if we found nothing Yes, because, um, well, I mean, it's it, like literally... With the, we are, yeah, it's, it's our yeah. ethical imperative to preserve what life we do know exists. And I mean, for now, that I still think that's imp- our imperative. And, and I think I, and we I, and damn I think, well need to get off this earth as quickly as we fucking can. Yeah, well, and, and the byproducts of, of that life as well. Every every tradition. I mean, I'm quite a preservationist in a lot of senses. Um, uh, I don't know if I'd say like socially conservative, but I, I, I there's a lot of like old things that I just think it's such a shame when they do die out. It's, it's mm-hmm. you know... I think I mentioned like, on the very first podcast, there was a guy who was using like bellows um, and like an old fire to, to do like um, smithing, like smithing horseshoes and things. He was like an old farrier. And yeah, just seeing those kind of old quirky things just die is um, kind of a bit of a tangent. But but I think that literally every... Yeah, every related to an yeah, entire civilization. Every product of, of life is just like the, the millionth chance of, of, of being... It's, it's yeah, it's just incredible. It's, it's staggering, and but I don't think people don't think people really want to stop and think about the uh, the fortune that is existence, right? And the potential, you know, the potential amount to which it is extremely special in the universe. We don't know because <laughs> yeah. we don't. We simply don't know if we how special we are. And yeah, like I said, I, th- I think exactly the same. It's like the the implications of that should hopefully mean that we are motivated to you know, survive at very least and try to create, a, you know, an ethical, preferable situation for ourselves. Mm. On that note, I think we'll uh, end it there. Mm. A nice second lockdown, everybody. Farewell. Cheers. Cheers.